Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Book 9, Chapters 1 through 12 of The City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo. Book 9, Chapter 1. Some have advanced the opinion that there are both good and bad gods, but some, thinking more respectfully of the gods, have attributed to them so much honour and praise as to preclude the supposition of any god being wicked. But those who have maintained that there are wicked gods as well as good ones have included the demons under the name gods, and sometimes, though more rarely, have called the gods demons, so that they admit that Jupiter, whom they make the king and head of all the rest, is called a demon by Homer. Those, on the other hand, who maintain that the gods are all good, and far more excellent than the men who are justly called good, are moved by the actions of the demons, which they can neither deny nor impute to the gods, whose goodness they affirm, to distinguish between gods and demons, so that, whenever they find anything offensive in the deeds or sentiments by which unseen spirits manifest their power, they believe this to proceed not from the gods, but from the demons. At the same time they believe that as no god can hold direct intercourse with men, these demons hold the position of mediators, ascending with prayers and returning with gifts. This is the opinion of the Platonists, the ablest and most esteemed of their philosophers, with whom we therefore chose to debate this question, whether the worship of a number of gods is of any service towards obtaining blessedness in the future life. And this is the reason why, in the preceding book, we have inquired how the demons, who take pleasure in such things as good and wise men loathe and execrate, in the sacrilegious and immoral fictions which the poets have written, not of men, but of the gods themselves, and in the wicked and criminal violence of magical arts, can be regarded as more nearly related and more friendly to the gods than men are, and can mediate between good men and the good gods, and it has been demonstrated that this is absolutely impossible." Chapter 2. This book, then, ought, according to the promise made in the end of the preceding one, to contain a discussion, not of the difference which exists among the gods, who, according to the Platonists, are all good, nor of the difference between gods and demons, the former of whom they separate by a wide interval from men, while the latter are placed intermediately between the gods and men, but of the difference, since they make one, among the demons themselves. This we shall discuss so far as it bears on our theme. It has been the common and usual belief that some of the demons are bad, others good, and this opinion, whether it be that of the Platonists or any other sect, must by no means be passed over in silence, lest some one suppose he ought to cultivate the good demons, in order that by their mediation he may be accepted by the gods, all of whom he believes to be good, and that he may live with them after death whereas he would thus be ensnared in the toils of wicked spirits, and would wander far from the true God, with whom alone, and in whom alone, the human soul, that is to say, the soul that is rational and intellectual, is blessed. CHAPTER three. 
What then is the difference between good and evil demons? For the Platonist Apuleius, in a treatise on this whole subject, while he says a great deal about their aerial bodies, has not a word to say of the spiritual virtues with which, if they were good, they must have been endowed. Not a word has he said, then, of that which could give them happiness, but proof of their misery he has given, acknowledging that their mind, by which they rank as reasonable beings, is not only not imbued and fortified with virtue so as to resist all unreasonable passions, but that it is somehow agitated with tempestuous emotions, and is thus on a level with the mind of foolish men. His own words are, it is this class of demons the poets refer to, when, without serious error, they feign that the gods hate and love individuals among men, prospering and ennobling some, and opposing and distressing others. Therefore pity, indignation, grief, joy, every human emotion is experienced by the demons, with the same mental disturbance, and the same tide of feeling and thought. These turmoils and tempests banish them far from the tranquillity of the celestial gods." Can there be any doubt that in these words it is not some inferior part of their spiritual nature, but the very mind by which the demons hold their rank as rational beings, which he says is tossed with passion like a stormy sea? They cannot then be compared even to wise men, who with undisturbed mind resist those perturbations to which they are exposed in this life, and from which human infirmity is never exempt, and who do not yield themselves to approve of or perpetrate anything which might deflect them from the path of wisdom and law of rectitude. They resemble in character, though not in bodily appearance, wicked and foolish men. I might indeed say they are worse, inasmuch as they have grown old in iniquity and incorrigible by punishment. Their mind, as Apuleius says, is a sea tossed with tempest, having no rallying point of truth or virtue in their soul, from which they can resist their turbulent and depraved emotions. CHAPTER Four. Among the philosophers there are two opinions about these mental emotions, which the Greeks call pathe, while some of our own writers, as Cicero, called the perturbations, some affections, and some, to render the Greek word more accurately, passions. Some say that even the wise man is subject to these perturbations, though moderated and controlled by reason, which imposes laws upon them, and so restrains them within necessary bounds. This is the opinion of the Platonists and Aristotelians, for Aristotle was Plato's disciple, and the founder of the Peripatetic school. But others, as the Stoics, are of opinion that the wise man is not subject to these perturbations. But Cicero, in his book De Finibus, shows that the Stoics are here at variance with the Platonists and Peripatetics rather in words than in reality, for the Stoics decline to apply the term goods to external and bodily advantages, because they reckon that the only good is virtue, the art of living well, and this exists only in the mind. The other philosophers, again, use the simple and customary phraseology, and do not scruple to call these things goods, though in comparison of virtue, which guides our life, they are little and of small esteem. And thus it is obvious that whether these outward things are called goods or advantages, they are held in the same estimation by both parties, and that in this matter the Stoics are pleasing themselves merely with a novel phraseology. It seems, then, to me, that in this question, whether the wise man is subject to mental passions, or wholly free from them, the controversy is one of words rather than of things. For I think that if the reality, and not the mere sound of the words, is considered, the Stoics hold precisely the same opinion as the Platonists and Peripatetics. For omitting for brevity's sake other proofs which I might adduce in support of this opinion, I will state but one which I consider conclusive. 
Aulus Gellius, a man of extensive erudition, and gifted with an eloquent and graceful style, relates, in his work entitled Noctes Atticae, that he once made a voyage with an eminent Stoic philosopher, and he goes on to relate fully and with gusto what I shall barely state, that when the ship was tossed and in danger from a violent storm, the philosopher grew pale with terror. This was noticed by those on board, who, though themselves threatened with death, were curious to see whether a philosopher would be agitated like other men. When the tempest had passed over, and as soon as their security gave them freedom to resume their talk, one of the passengers, a rich and luxurious Asiatic, begins to banter the philosopher, and rally him because he had even become pale with fear, while he himself had been unmoved by the impending destruction. But the philosopher availed himself of the reply of Aristippus the Socratic, who, on finding himself similarly bantered by a man of the same character, answered, You had no cause for anxiety for the soul of a profligate debauchee, but I had reason to be alarmed for the soul of Aristippus. The rich man being thus disposed of, Aulus Gellius, asked the philosopher, in the interests of science, not to annoy him, what was the reason of his fear. And he, willing to instruct a man so zealous in the pursuit of knowledge, at once took from his wallet a book of Epictetus the Stoic, in which doctrines were advanced which precisely harmonized with those of Zeno and Chrysippus, the founders of the Stoical school. Aulus Gellius says that he read in this book that the Stoics maintain that there are certain impressions made on the soul by external objects, which they call phantasiae, and that it is not in the power of the soul to determine whether or when it shall be invaded by these. When these impressions are made by alarming and formidable objects, it must needs be that they move the soul even of the wise man, so that for a little he trembles with fear, or is depressed by sadness, these impressions anticipating the work of reason and self-control. But this does not imply that the mind accepts these evil impressions, or approves or consents to them. For this consent is, they think, in a man's power, there being this difference between the mind of the wise man and that of the fool, that the fool's mind yields to these passions, and consents to them, while that of the wise man, though it cannot help being invaded by them, yet retains with unshaken firmness a true and steady persuasion of those things which it ought rationally to desire or avoid. This account of what Aulus Gellius relates that he had read in the book of Epictetus, about the sentiments and doctrines of the Stoics, I have given as well as I could, not perhaps with his choice language, but with greater brevity, and I think with greater clearness. And if this be true, then there is no difference, or next to none, between the opinion of the Stoics and that of the other philosophers, regarding mental passions and perturbations, for both parties agree in maintaining that the mind and reason of the wise man are not subject to these. And perhaps what the Stoics mean by asserting this, is that the wisdom which characterizes the wise man is clouded by no error, and sullied by no taint, but, with this reservation that his wisdom remains undisturbed, he is exposed to the impressions which the goods and ills of this life, or, as they prefer to call them, the advantages or disadvantages, make upon them. For we need not say that if that philosopher had thought nothing of those things which he thought he was forthwith to lose, life and bodily safety, he would not have been so terrified by his danger as to betray his fear by the pallor of his cheek. Nevertheless, he might suffer this mental disturbance, and yet maintain the fixed persuasion that life and bodily safety, which the violence of the tempest threatened to destroy, are not those good things which make their possessors good, as the possession of righteousness does. But in so far as they persist that we must call them not goods, but advantages, they quarrel about words, and neglect things. 
for what difference does it make whether goods or advantages be the better name, while the Stoic no less than the Peripatetic is alarmed at the prospect of losing them, and while, though they name them differently, they hold them in like esteem? Both parties assure us that if urged to the commission of some immorality or crime by the threatened loss of these goods or advantages, they would prefer to lose such things as preserve bodily comfort and security, rather than commit such things as violate righteousness. And thus the mind in which this resolution is well grounded suffers no perturbations to prevail with it in opposition to reason, even though they assail the weaker parts of the soul. And not only so, but it rules over them, and, while it refuses its consent and resists them, administers a reign of virtue. Such a character is described to Aeneas by Virgil when he says, He stands immovable by tears, nor tenderest words with pity hears. Chapter 5 We need not at present give a careful and copious exposition of the doctrine of Scripture, the sum of Christian knowledge, regarding these passions. It subjects the mind itself to God, that he may rule and aid it, and the passions again to the mind, to moderate and bridle them, and turn them to righteous uses. In our ethics we do not so much inquire whether a pious soul is angry as why he is angry, not whether he is sad, but what is the cause of his sadness, not whether he fears, but what he fears. For I am not aware that any right-thinking person would find fault with anger at a wrong-doer which seeks his amendment, or with sadness which intends relief to the suffering, or with fear lest one in danger be destroyed. The Stoics, indeed, are accustomed to condemn compassion. But how much more honourable had it been in that Stoic we have been telling of, had he been disturbed by compassion prompting him to relieve a fellow-creature, than to be disturbed by the fear of shipwreck? far better and more humane and more consonant with pious sentiments are the words of cicero in praise of caesar when he says among your virtues none is more admirable and agreeable than your compassion and what is compassion but a fellow-feeling for another's misery which prompts us to help him if we can and this emotion is obedient to reason when compassion is shown without violating right as when the poor are relieved or the penitent forgiven Cicero, who knew how to use language, did not hesitate to call this a virtue, which the Stoics are not ashamed to reckon among the vices, although, as the book of the eminent Stoic Epictetus, quoting the opinions of Zeno and Chrysippus, the founders of the school, has taught us, they admit that passions of this kind invade the soul of the wise man, whom they would have to be free from all vice. Whence it follows that these very passions are not judged by them to be vices, since they assail the wise man without forcing him to act against reason and virtue, and that therefore the opinion of the Peripatetics or Platonists, and of the Stoics, is one and the same. But, as Cicero says, mere logomachy is the bane of these pitiful Greeks, who thirst for contention rather than for truth. However, it may justly be asked whether our subjection to these affections, even while we follow virtue, is a part of the infirmity of this life. For the holy angels feel no anger while they punish those whom the eternal law of God consigns to punishment, no fellow-feeling with misery while they relieve the miserable, no fear while they aid those who are in danger. And yet ordinary language ascribes to them also these mental emotions, because, though they have none of our weakness, their acts resemble the acts to which these emotions move us. And thus even God himself is said in Scripture to be angry, and yet without any perturbation. For this word is used of the effect of his vengeance, not of the disturbing mental affection. Chapter 6 
Deferring for the present the question about the holy angels, let us examine the opinion of the Platonists, that the demons who mediate between gods and men are agitated by passions. For if their mind, though exposed to their incursions, still remained free and superior to them, Apuleius could not have said that their hearts are tossed with passions as the sea by stormy winds. Their mind, then, that superior part of their soul whereby they are rational beings, and which, if it actually exists in them, should rule and bridle the turbulent passions of the inferior parts of the soul, this mind of theirs, I say, is, according to the Platonist referred to, tossed with a hurricane of passions. The minds of the demons, therefore, are subject to the emotions of fear, anger, lust, and all similar affections. What part of them, then, is free, and endued with wisdom, so that they are pleasing to the gods, and the fit guides of men into purity of life, since their very highest part, being the slave of passion and subject to vice, only makes them more intent on deceiving and seducing, in proportion to the mental force and energy of desire they possess? CHAPTER Seven. But if any one says that it is not of all the demons, but only of the wicked, that the poets, not without truth, say that they violently love or hate certain men, for it was of them Apuleius said that they were driven about by strong currents of emotion, how can we accept this interpretation when Apuleius, in the very same connection, represents all the demons, and not only the wicked, as intermediate between gods and men by their aerial bodies? The fiction of the poets, according to him, consists in their making gods of demons, and giving them the names of gods, and assigning them as allies or enemies to individual men, using this poetical license, though they profess that the gods are very different in character from the demons, and far exalted above them by their celestial abode and wealth of beatitude. This, I say, is the poet's fiction, to say that these are gods who are not gods, and that under the names of gods they fight among themselves about the men whom they love or hate, with keen partisan feeling. Apuleius says that this is not far from the truth, since, though they are wrongfully called by the names of the gods, they are described in their own proper character as demons. To this category, he says, belongs the Minerva of Homer, who interposed in the ranks of the Greeks to restrain Achilles. For that this was Minerva he supposes to be poetical fiction, for he thinks that Minerva is a goddess, and he places her among the gods whom he believes to be all good and blessed in the sublime ethereal region, remote from intercourse with men. But that there was a demon favourable to the Greeks, and adverse to the Trojans, as another whom the same poet mentions under the name of Venus or Mars, gods exalted above earthly affairs and their heavenly habitations, was the Trojans' ally and the foe of the Greeks, and that these demons fought for those they loved against those they hated, in all this he owned that the poets stated something very like the truth. For they made these statements about beings to whom he ascribes the same violent and tempestuous passions as disturbed men, and who are therefore capable of loves and hatreds not justly formed, but formed in a party spirit, as the spectators in races or hunts take fancies and prejudices. It seems to have been the great fear of this Platonist that the poetical fiction should be believed of the gods, and not of the demons who bore their names. CHAPTER Eight. The definition which Apuleius gives of demons, and in which he of course includes all demons, is that they are in nature animals, in soul subject to passion, in mind reasonable, in body aerial, in duration eternal. 
Now in these five qualities he has named absolutely nothing which is proper to good men, and not also to bad. For when Apuleius had spoken of the celestials first, and had then extended his description so as to include an account of those who dwell far below on the earth, that, after describing the two extremes of rational being, he might proceed to speak of the intermediate demons, he says, Men, therefore, who are endowed with the faculty of reason and speech, whose soul is immortal, and their members mortal, who have weak and anxious spirits, dull and corruptible bodies, dissimilar characters, similar ignorance, who are obstinate in their audacity, and persistent in their hope, whose labor is vain, and whose fortune is ever on the wane, their race immortal, themselves perishing, each generation replenished with creatures whose life is swift and their wisdom slow, their death sudden and their life a wail. These are the men who dwell on the earth. In recounting so many qualities which belong to the large proportion of men, did he forget that which is the property of the few when he speaks of their wisdom being slow? If this had been omitted, this his description of the human race, so carefully elaborated, would have been defective. And when he commended the excellence of the gods, he affirmed that they excelled in that very blessedness to which he thinks men must attain by wisdom. And therefore, if he had wished us to believe that some of the demons are good, he should have inserted in his description something by which we might see that they have, in common with the gods, some share of blessedness, or in common with men, some wisdom. But as it is, he has mentioned no good quality by which the good may be distinguished from the bad. For although he refrained from giving a full account of their wickedness, through fear of offending, not themselves, but their worshippers, for whom he was writing, yet he sufficiently indicated to discerning readers what opinion he had of them. For only in the one article of the eternity of their bodies does he assimilate them to the gods, all of whom, he asserts, are good and blessed, and absolutely free from what he calls himself the stormy passions of the demons. And as to the soul, he quite plainly affirms that they resemble men and not the gods, and that this resemblance lies not in the possession of wisdom, which even men can attain to, but in the perturbation of passions which sway the foolish and wicked, but is so ruled by the good and wise that they prefer not to admit rather than to conquer it. For if he had wished it to be understood that the demons resembled the gods in the eternity not of their bodies, but of their souls, he would certainly have admitted men to share in this privilege, because, as a Platonist, he of course must hold that the human soul is eternal. Accordingly, when describing this race of living beings, he said that their souls were immortal, their members mortal. And consequently, if men have not eternity in common with the gods because they have mortal bodies, demons have eternity in common with the gods because their bodies are immortal. Chapter 9. How, then, can men hope for a favorable introduction to the friendship of the gods by such mediators as these, who are, like men, defective in that which is the better part of every living creature, the soul, and who resemble the gods only in the body, which is the inferior part? For a living creature or animal consists of soul and body, and of these two parts the soul is undoubtedly the better. Even though vicious and weak, it is obviously better than even the soundest and strongest body, for the greater excellence of its nature is not reduced to the level of the body even by the pollution of vice, as gold, even when tarnished, is more precious than the purest silver or lead. And yet these mediators, by whose interposition things human and divine are to be harmonized, have an eternal body in common with the gods, and a vicious soul in common with men, as if the religion by which these demons are to unite gods and men were a bodily and not a spiritual matter. What wickedness, then, or punishment has suspended these false and deceitful mediators, as it were, head downwards, so that their inferior part, their body, is linked to the gods above, and their superior part, the soul, bond to men beneath? 
united to the celestial gods by the part that serves, and miserable together with the inhabitants of earth by the part that rules. For the body is the servant, as Sallust says, we use the soul to rule, the body to obey, adding, the one we have in common with the gods, the other with the brutes. For he was here speaking of men, and they have, like the brutes, a mortal body. These demons, whom our philosophic friends have provided for us as mediators with the gods, may indeed say of the soul and body, the one we have in common with the gods, the other with men. But as I said, they are as it were suspended and bound head downwards, having the slave, the body, in common with the gods, the master, the soul, in common with the miserable men, their inferior part exalted, their superior part depressed. And therefore, if any one supposes that because they are not subject, like terrestrial animals, to the separation of soul and body by death, they therefore resemble the gods in their eternity, their body must not be considered a chariot of an eternal triumph, but rather the chain of an eternal punishment. CHAPTER Ten. Plotinus, whose memory is quite recent, enjoys the reputation of having understood Plato better than any other of his disciples. In speaking of human souls, he says, the father in compassion made their bonds mortal. That is to say, he considered it due to the father's mercy that men, having a mortal body, should not be forever confined in the misery of this life. But of this mercy the demons have been judged unworthy, and they have received, in conjunction with a soul subject to passions, a body not mortal like man's, but eternal. For they should have been happier than men if they had, like men, had a mortal body, and like the gods, a blessed soul. And they should have been equal to men, if a conjunction with a miserable soul they had at least received, like men, a mortal body, so that death might have freed them from trouble, if at least they should have attained some degree of piety. But as it is, they are not only no happier than men, having, like them, a miserable soul, they are also more wretched, being eternally bound to the body. For he does not leave us to infer that by some progress in wisdom and piety they can become gods, but expressly says that they are demons for ever. CHAPTER Eleven. He says, indeed, that the souls of men are demons, and that men become lares if they are good, lemures or larvae if they are bad, and manes if it is uncertain whether they deserve well or ill. Who does not see at a glance that this is a mere whirlpool sucking men to moral destruction? For however wicked men may have been, if they suppose they shall become larvae or divine manes, they will become the worse the more love they have for inflicting injury. For as the larvae are hurtful demons made out of wicked men, these men must suppose that after death they will be invoked with sacrifices and divine honours, that they may inflict injuries. But this question we must not pursue. He also states that the blessed are called in Greek eudaimones, because they are good souls, that is to say, good demons, confirming his opinion that the souls of men are demons. Chapter 12. But at present we are speaking of those beings whom he described as being properly intermediate between gods and men, in nature animals, in mind rational, in soul subject to passion, in body aerial, in duration eternal. When he had distinguished the gods whom he placed in the highest heaven, from men whom he placed on earth, not only by position, but also by the unequal dignity of their natures, he concluded in these words, You have here two kinds of animals, the gods, widely distinguished from men by sublimity of abode, perpetuity of life, perfection of nature, for their habitations are separated by so wide an interval that there can be no intimate communication between them, and while the vitality of the one is eternal and indefeasible, that of the others is fading and precarious, and while the spirits of the gods are exalted in bliss, those of men are sunk in miseries. Here I find three opposite qualities ascribed to the extremes of being, the highest and lowest. 
for after mentioning the three qualities for which we are to admire the gods, he repeated, though in other words, the same three as a foil to the defects of man. The three qualities are sublimity of abode, perpetuity of life, perfection of nature. These he again mentioned so as to bring out their contrasts in man's condition. As he had mentioned sublimity of abode, he says, their habitations are separated by so wide an interval. As he had mentioned perpetuity of life, he says that while divine life is eternal and indefeasible, human life is fading and precarious. And as he had mentioned perfection of nature, he says that while the spirits of the gods are exalted in bliss, those of men are sunk in miseries. These three things, then, he predicates of the gods, exaltation, eternity, blessedness, and of man he predicates the opposite, lowliness of habitation, mortality, misery. End of Book 9, Chapters 1-12 through 12. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org Book 9, Chapters 13-23 through 23 of The City of God this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo. Book 9. Chapter 13. If now we endeavor to find between these opposites the mean occupied by the demons, there can be no question as to their local position. For between the highest and lowest place there is a place which is rightly considered and called the middle place. The other two qualities remain, and to them we must give greater care, that we may see whether they are altogether foreign to the demons, or how they are so bestowed upon them without infringing upon their immediate position. We may dismiss the idea that they are foreign to them, for we cannot say that the demons, being rational animals, are neither blessed nor wretched, as we say of the beasts and plants, which are void of feeling and reason, or, as we say of the middle place, that it is neither the highest nor the lowest. The demons, being rational, must be either miserable or blessed. And in like manner we cannot say that they are neither mortal nor immortal, for all living things either live eternally or end life in death. Our author, besides, stated that the demons are eternal. What remains for us to suppose, then, but that these mediate beings are assimilated to the gods in one of the two remaining qualities, and to men in the other? For if they received both from above, or both from beneath, they should no longer be mediate, but either rise to the gods above, or sink to men beneath. Therefore, as it has been demonstrated that they must possess these two qualities, they will hold their middle place if they receive one from each party. Consequently, as they cannot receive their eternity from beneath, because it is not there to receive, they must get it from above, and accordingly they have no choice but to complete their immediate position by accepting misery from men. According to the Platonists, then, the gods who occupy the highest place enjoy eternal blessedness or blessed eternity, men who occupy the lowest a mortal misery or a miserable mortality, and the demons who occupy the mean a miserable eternity or an eternal misery. As to those five things which Apuleius included in his definition of demons, he did not show, as he promised, that the demons are mediate. For three of them, that their nature is animal, their mind rational, their soul subject to passions, he said that they have in common with men, one thing their eternity in common with the gods, and one proper to themselves, their aerial body. How then are they intermediate when they have three things in common with the lowest, and only one in common with the highest? Who does not see that the intermediate position is abandoned in proportion as they tend to, and are depressed towards the lowest extreme? 
but perhaps we are to accept them as intermediate because of their one property of an aerial body as the two extremes have each their proper body the gods an ethereal men a terrestrial body and because two of the qualities they possess in common with man they possess also in common with the gods namely their animal nature and rational mind for apuleius himself in speaking of gods and men said you have two animal natures and platonists are wont to ascribe a rational mind to the gods two qualities remain their liability to passion and their eternity the first of which they have in common with men the second with the gods so that they are neither wafted to the highest nor depressed to the lowest extreme but perfectly poised in their intermediate position but then this is the very circumstance which constitutes the eternal misery or miserable eternity of the demons for he who says that their soul is subject to passions would also have said that they are miserable had he not blushed for their worshippers moreover as the world is governed not by fortuitous haphazard but as the platonists themselves avow by the providence of the supreme god the misery of the demons would not be eternal unless their wickedness were great if then the blessed are rightly styled you demons the demons intermediate between gods and men are not you demons what then is the local position of those good demons who above men but beneath the gods afford assistance to the former minister to the latter for if they are good and eternal they are doubtless blessed but eternal blessedness destroys their intermediate character giving them a close resemblance to the gods and widely separating them from men and therefore the platonists will in vain strive to show how the good demons if they are both immortal and blessed can justly be said to hold a middle place between the gods who are immortal and blessed and men who are mortal and miserable for if they have both immortality and blessedness in common with the gods and neither of these in common with men who are both miserable and mortal are they not rather remote from men and united with the gods than intermediate between them they would be intermediate if they held one of their qualities in common with the one party and the other with the other as man is a kind of mean between angels and beasts the beast being irrational and mortal animal the angel a rational and immortal one while man inferior to the angel and superior to the beast and having in common with the one mortality with the other reason is a rational and mortal animal so when we seek for an intermediate between the blessed immortals and miserable mortals we should find a being which is either mortal and blessed or immortal and miserable chapter fourteen it is a great question among men whether man can be mortal and blessed some taking the humbler view of his condition have denied that he is capable of blessedness so long as he continues in this mortal life others again have spurned this idea and have been bold enough to maintain that even though mortal men may be blessed by attaining wisdom but if this be the case why are not these wise men constituted mediators between miserable mortals and the blessed immortals since they have blessedness in common with the latter and mortality in common with the former certainly if they are blessed they envy no one for what more miserable than envy but seek with all their might to help miserable mortals on to blessedness so that after death they may become immortal and be associated with the blessed and immortal angels chapter fifteen but if as is much more probable and credible it must needs be that all men so long as they are mortal are also miserable we must seek an intermediate who is not only man but also god that by the interposition of his blessed mortality he may bring men out of their mortal misery to a blessed immortality in this intermediate two things are requisite that he become mortal and that he do not continue mortal 
he did become mortal, not rendering the divinity of the word infirm, but assuming the infirmity of flesh. Neither did he continue mortal in the flesh, but raised it from the dead, for it is the very fruit of his mediation that those, for the sake of whose redemption he became the mediator, should not abide eternally in bodily death. Wherefore it became the mediator between us and God to have both a transient mortality and a permanent blessedness, that by that which is transient he might be assimilated to mortals, and might translate them from mortality to that which is permanent. Good angels, therefore, cannot mediate between miserable mortals and blessed immortals, for they themselves also are both blessed and immortal. But evil angels can mediate, because they are immortal like the one party, miserable like the other. To these is opposed the good mediator, who in opposition to their immortality and misery has chosen to be mortal for a time, and has been able to continue blessed in eternity. It is thus he has destroyed, by the humility of his death and the benignity of his blessedness, the proud immortals and hurtful wretches, and has prevented them from seducing to misery, by their boast of immortality, those men whose hearts he has cleansed by faith, and whom he has thus freed from their impure dominion. Man, then, mortal and miserable, and far removed from the immortal and the blessed, what medium shall he choose by which he may be united to immortality and blessedness? The immortality of the demons, which might have some charm for man, is miserable. The mortality of Christ, which might offend man, exists no longer. In the one there is the fear of an eternal misery, in the other death, which could not be eternal, can no longer be feared, and blessedness, which is eternal, must be loved. For the immortal and miserable mediator interposes himself to prevent us from passing to a blessed immortality, because that which hinders such a passage, namely misery, continues in him. But the mortal and blessed mediator interposed himself, in order that, having passed through mortality, he might of mortals make immortals, showing his power to do this in his own resurrection, and from being miserable to raise them to the blessed company from the number of whom he had himself never departed. There is, then, a wicked mediator who separates friends, and a good mediator who reconciles enemies. And those who separate are numerous, because the multitude of the blessed are blessed only by their participation in the one God, of which participation the evil angels being deprived, they are wretched, and interposed to hinder rather than to help to this blessedness, and by their very number prevent us from reaching that one beatific good, to obtain which we need not many, but one mediator, the uncreated word of God, by whom all things were made, in a partaking of whom we are blessed. I do not say that he is a mediator because he is the Word, for as the Word he is supremely blessed and supremely immortal, and therefore far from miserable mortals. But he is mediator as he is man, for by his humanity he shows us that, in order to obtain that blessed and beatific good, we need not seek other mediators to lead us through the successive steps of this attainment, but that the blessed and beatific God, having himself become a partaker of our humanity, has afforded us ready access to the participation of his divinity. For in delivering us from our mortality and misery, he does not lead us to the immortal and blessed angels, so that we should become immortal and blessed by participating in their nature, but he leads us straight to that trinity by participating in which the angels themselves are blessed. Therefore, when he chose to be in the form of a servant, and lower than the angels, that he might be our mediator, he remained higher than the angels in the form of God, himself at once the way of life on earth, and life itself in heaven. Chapter 16 That opinion which the same Platonist avers that Plato uttered is not true, that no God holds intercourse with men. 
and this, he says, is the chief evidence of their exaltation that they are never contaminated by contact with men. He admits, therefore, that the demons are contaminated, and it follows that they cannot cleanse those by whom they are themselves contaminated, and thus all alike become impure, the demons by associating with men, and men by worshipping the demons. Or if they say that the demons are not contaminated by associating and dealing with men, then they are better than the gods, for the gods, were they to do so, would be contaminated. For this, we are told, is the glory of the gods, that they are so highly exalted that no human intercourse can sully them. He affirms, indeed, that the supreme God, the creator of all things, whom we call the true God, is spoken of by Plato as the only God whom the poverty of human speech fails even passably to describe, and that even the wise, when their mental energy is as far as possible delivered from the trammels of connection with the body, have only such gleams of insight into his nature as may be compared to a flash of lightning illumining the darkness. If, then, this supreme God, who is truly exalted above all things, does nevertheless visit the minds of the wise, when emancipated from the body, with an intelligible and ineffable presence, though this be only occasional, and as it were a swift flash of light athwart the darkness, why are the other gods so sublimely removed from all contact with men, as if they would be polluted by it? As if it were not a sufficient refutation of this, to lift up our eyes to those heavenly bodies which give the earth its needful light." If the stars, though they by his account are visible gods, are not contaminated when we look at them, neither are the demons contaminated when men see them quite closely. But perhaps it is the human voice and not the eye which pollutes the gods, and therefore the demons are appointed to mediate and carry men's utterances to the gods, who keep themselves remote through fear of pollution? What am I to say of the other senses? For by smell neither the demons who are present, nor the gods, though they were present in inhaling the exhalations of living men, would be polluted if they are not contaminated with the effluvia of the carcasses offered in sacrifice. As for taste, they are pressed by no necessity of repairing bodily decay, so as to be reduced to ask food from men. And touch is in their own power. For while it may seem that contact is so called because the sense of touch is specially concerned in it, yet the gods, if so minded, might mingle with men, so as to see and be seen, hear and be heard, and where is the need of touching? For men would not dare to desire this if they were favoured with the sight or conversation of gods or good demons. And if, through excessive curiosity, they should desire it, how could they accomplish their wish without the consent of the god or demon, when they cannot touch so much as a sparrow unless it be caged? There is, then, nothing to hinder the gods from mingling in a bodily form with men, from seeing and being seen, from speaking and hearing. And if the demons do thus mix with men, as I said, and are not polluted, while the gods, were they to do so, should be polluted, then the demons are less liable to pollution than the gods. And if even the demons are contaminated, how can they help men to attain blessedness after death, if, so far from being able to cleanse them and present them clean, to the unpolluted gods, these mediators are themselves polluted. And if they cannot confer this benefit on men, what good can their friendly mediation do? Or shall its result be not that men find entrance to the gods, but that men and demons abide together in a state of pollution, and consequently of exclusion from blessedness? Unless, perhaps, someone may say, that like sponges or things of that sort, the demons themselves, in the process of cleansing their friends, become themselves the filthier in proportion as the others become clean. But if this is the solution, then the gods, who shun contact or intercourse with men for fear of pollution, mix with demons who are far more polluted. 
or perhaps the gods who cannot cleanse men without polluting themselves, can without pollution cleanse the demons who have been contaminated by human contact. Who can believe such follies unless the demons have practised their deceit upon him? If seeing and being seen is contamination, and if the gods, whom Apuleius himself calls visible, the brilliant lights of the world, and the other stars are seen by men, are we to believe that the demons, who cannot be seen unless they please, are safer from contamination? Or if it is only the seeing and not the being seen which contaminates, then they must deny that these gods of theirs, these brilliant lights of the world, see men when their rays beam upon the earth. Their rays are not contaminated by lighting on all manner of pollution, and are we to suppose that the gods would be contaminated if they mixed with men, and even if contact were needed in order to assist them? For there is contact between the earth and the sun's or moon's rays, and yet this does not pollute the light. Chapter 17 I am considerably surprised that such learned men, men who pronounce all material and sensible things to be altogether inferior to those that are spiritual and intelligible, should mention bodily contact in connection with a blessed life. Is that sentiment of Plotinus forgotten? We must fly to our beloved fatherland. There is the father, there are all. What fleet or flight shall convey us thither? Our way is to become like God." If, then, one is nearer to God, the liker he is to him, there is no other distance from God than unlikeness to him. And the soul of man is unlike that incorporeal and unchangeable and eternal essence, in proportion as it craves things temporal and mutable. And as the things beneath, which are mortal and impure, cannot hold intercourse with the immortal purity which is above, a mediator is indeed needed to remove this difficulty, but not a mediator who resembles the highest order of being by possessing an immortal body, and the lowest by having a diseased soul, which makes him rather grudge that we be healed than help our cure. We need a mediator, who, being united to us here below by the mortality of his body, should at the same time be able to afford us truly divine help in cleansing and liberating us by means of the immortal righteousness of his spirit, whereby he remained heavenly even while here upon earth. Far be it from the incontaminable God to fear pollution from the man he assumed, or from the men among whom he lived in the form of a man. For, though his incarnation showed us nothing else, these two wholesome facts were enough, that true divinity cannot be polluted by flesh, and that demons are not to be considered better than ourselves because they have not flesh. This, then, as Scripture says, is the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, of whose divinity, whereby he is equal to the Father, and humanity, whereby he has become like us, this is not the place to speak as fully as I could. CHAPTER Eighteen. As to the demons, these false and deceitful mediators, who, though their uncleanness of spirit frequently reveals their misery and malignity, yet by virtue of the levity of their aerial bodies and the nature of the places they inhabit, do contrive to turn us aside and hinder our spiritual progress, they do not help us towards God, but rather prevent us from reaching Him. Since even in the bodily way which is erroneous and misleading, and in which righteousness does not walk, for we must rise to God not by bodily assent, but by incorporeal or spiritual conformity to him. In this bodily way, I say, which the friends of the demons arrange according to the weight of the various elements, the aerial demons being set between the ethereal gods and earthy men, they imagine the gods to have this privilege, that by this local interval they are preserved from the pollution of human contact. Thus they believe that the demons are contaminated by men rather than men cleansed by the demons, and that the gods themselves should be polluted unless their local superiority preserved them. 
Who is so wretched a creature as to expect purification by a way in which men are contaminating, demons contaminated, and gods contaminable? Who would not rather choose that way whereby we escape the contamination of the demons, and are cleansed from pollution by the incontaminable God, so as to be associated with the uncontaminated angels? Chapter 19 But as some of these demodelators, as I may call them, and among them Labeo, allege that those whom they call demons are by others called angels, I must, if I would not seem to dispute merely about words, say something about the good angels. The Platonists do not deny their existence, but prefer to call them good demons. But we, following scripture, according to which we are Christians, have learned that some of the angels are good, some bad, but never have we read in scripture of good demons. But wherever this or any cognate term occurs, it is applied only to wicked spirits. And this usage has become so universal, that even among those who are called pagans, and who maintain that demons as well as gods should be worshipped, there is scarcely a man, no matter how well read and learned, who would dare to say, by way of praise to his slave, You have a demon, or who could doubt that the man to whom he said this would consider it a curse? Why then are we to subject ourselves to the necessity of explaining away what we have said, when we have given offence by using the word demon, with which every one, or almost every one, connects a bad meaning, while we can so easily evade this necessity by using the word angel? Chapter 20 However, the very origin of the name suggests something worthy of consideration, if we compare it with the divine books. They are called demons from a Greek word meaning knowledge. Now the apostle speaking for the holy spirit says knowledge puffeth up but charity buildeth up and this can only be understood as meaning that without charity knowledge does no good but inflates a man or magnifies him with an empty windiness the demons then have knowledge without charity and are thereby so inflated or proud that they crave those divine honours and religious services which they know to be due to the true god and still as far as they can exact these from all over whom they have influence Against this pride of the demons, under which the human race was held subject as its merited punishment, there was exerted the mighty influence of the humility of God, who appeared in the form of a servant. But men, resembling the demons in pride, but not in knowledge, and being puffed up with uncleanness, failed to recognize him. CHAPTER Twenty One. The devils themselves knew this manifestation of God so well, that they said to the Lord, that clothed with the infirmity of flesh, what have we to do with thee, Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us before the time? From these words it is clear that they had great knowledge, and no charity. They feared his power to punish, and did not love his righteousness. He made known to them so much as he pleased, and when he was pleased to make known so much as was needful. But he made himself known not as to the holy angels, who know him as the word of God, and rejoice in his eternity, which they partake, but as was requisite to strike with terror the beings from whose tyranny he was going to free those who were predestined to his kingdom and the glory of it, eternally true and truly eternal. He made himself known, therefore, to the demons, not by that which is life eternal, and the unchangeable light which illumines the pious, whose souls are cleansed by the faith that is in him, but by some temporal effects of his power, and evidences of his mysterious presence, which were more easily discerned by the angelic senses even of wicked spirits, than by human infirmity. But when he judged it advisable gradually to suppress these signs, and to retire into deeper obscurity, the prince of the demons doubted whether he were the Christ, and endeavoured to ascertain this by tempting him, in so far as he permitted himself to be tempted, that he might adapt the manhood he wore to be an example for our imitation. 
But after that temptation, when, as Scripture says, he was ministered to by the angels who were good and holy, and therefore objects of terror to the impure spirits, he revealed more and more distinctly to the demons how great he was, so that even though the infirmity of his flesh might seem contemptible, none dared to resist his authority. CHAPTER Twenty Two. The good angels, therefore, hold cheap all that knowledge of material and transitory things which the demons are so proud of possessing. Not that they are ignorant of these things, but because the love of God, whereby they are sanctified, is very dear to them, and because, in comparison of that not merely immaterial, but also unchangeable and ineffable beauty, with the holy love of which they are inflamed, they despise all things which are beneath it, and all that is not it, that they may with every good thing that is in them enjoy that good which is the source of their goodness. And therefore they have a more certain knowledge even of those temporal and mutable things, because they contemplate their principles and causes in the word of God by which the world was made, those causes by which one thing is approved, another rejected, and all arranged. But the demons do not behold in the wisdom of God these eternal, and as it were cardinal causes of things temporal, but only foresee a larger part of the future than men do, by reason of their greater acquaintance with the signs which are hidden from us. Sometimes, too, it is their own intentions they predict. And finally, the demons are frequently, the angels never, deceived. For it is one thing, by the aid of things temporal and changeable, to conjecture the changes that may occur in time, and to modify such things by one's own will and faculty, and this is to a certain extent permitted to the demons. It is another thing to foresee the changes of times in the eternal and immutable laws of God, which live in his wisdom, and to know the will of God, the most infallible and powerful of all causes, by participating in his spirit, and this is granted to the holy angels by a just discretion. And thus they are not only eternal, but blessed, and the good wherein they are blessed is God, by whom they were created, for without end they enjoy the contemplation and participation of him. Chapter 23 if the Platonists prefer to call these angels gods rather than demons, and to reckon them with those whom Plato, their founder and master, maintains were created by the supreme God, they are welcome to do so, for I will not spend strength in fighting about words. For if they say that these beings are immortal, and yet created by the supreme God, blessed, but by cleaving to their creator, and not by their own power, they say what we say, whatever name they call these things by and that this is the opinion either of all or the best of the Platonists can be ascertained by their writings. And regarding the name itself, if they see fit to call such blessed and immortal creatures gods, this need not give rise to any serious discussion between us, since in our own scriptures we read, The God of gods, the Lord, hath spoken, and again, confess to the God of gods, and again, He is a great king above all gods. And where it is said, He is to be feared above all gods, the reason is forthwith added, for it follows, For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. He said, Above all gods, but added, of the nations, that is to say, above all those whom the nations count gods, in other words, demons. By them he is to be feared with that terror, in which they cry to the Lord, Hast thou come to destroy us? But where it is said, the God of gods, it cannot be understood as the God of the demons, and far be it from us to say that, that great king above all gods means great king above all demons. But the same scripture also calls men who belong to God's people gods. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you children of the Most High. Accordingly, when God is styled God of gods, this may be understood of these gods, and so too when he is styled a great king above all gods. 
Nevertheless, someone may say, if men are called gods because they belong to God's people, whom he addresses by means of men and angels, are not the immortals, who already enjoy that felicity which men seek to attain by worshipping God, much more worthy of the title? And what shall we reply to this, if not that it is not without reason that in holy scripture men are more expressly styled gods than those immortal and blessed spirits to whom we hope to be equal in the resurrection, because there was a fear that the weakness of unbelief, being overcome with the excellence of these beings, might presume to constitute some of them a god? In the case of men this was a result that need not be guarded against. Besides, it was right that the men belonging to God's people should be more expressly called gods, to assure and certify them that he who is called God of gods is their God. Because, although those immortal and blessed spirits who dwell in the heavens are called gods, yet they are not called gods of gods, that is to say, gods of the men who constitute God's people, and to whom it is said, I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you the children of the Most High. Hence the saying of the Apostle, Though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many, and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. We need not therefore laboriously contend about the name, since the reality is so obvious as to admit of no shadow of doubt. That which we say, that the angels who are sent to announce the will of God to men belong to the order of blessed immortals, does not satisfy the Platonists, because they believe that this ministry is discharged not by those whom they call gods, in other words, not by blessed immortals, but by demons whom they dare not affirm to be blessed, but only immortal, or if they do rank them among the blessed immortals, yet only as good demons, and not as gods who dwell in the heaven of heavens, remote from all human contact. But though it may seem mere wrangling about a name, yet the name of demon is so detestable that we cannot bear in any sense to apply it to the holy angels. Now therefore let us close this book in the assurance that, whatever we call these immortal and blessed spirits, who yet are only creatures, they do not act as mediators to introduce to everlasting felicity miserable mortals, from whom they are severed by a twofold distinction and those others who are mediators, in so far as they have immortality in common with their superiors, and misery in common with their inferiors, for they are justly miserable in punishment of their wickedness, cannot bestow upon us, but rather grudge that we should possess, the blessedness from which they themselves are excluded. And so the friends of the demons have nothing considerable to allege why we should rather worship them as our helpers, than avoid them as traitors to our interests. As for those spirits who are good, and who are therefore not only immortal, but also blessed, and to whom they suppose we should give the title of gods, and offer worship and sacrifices, for the sake of inheriting a future life, we shall, by God's help, endeavour in the following book to show that these spirits, call them by what name, and ascribe to them what nature you will, desire that religious worship be paid to God alone, by whom they were created, and by whose communications of himself to them they are blessed. End of Book Nine, Chapters Thirteen through Twenty Three. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org. Book Ten, Chapters One through Seventeen of The City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo, Book 10, 
Chapter 1 It is the decided opinion of all who use their brains that all men desire to be happy. But who are happy, or how they become so, these are questions about which the weakness of human understanding stirs endless and angry controversies, in which philosophers have wasted their strength and expended their leisure. To adduce and discuss their various opinions would be tedious and is unnecessary. The reader may remember what we said in the eighth book, while making a selection of the philosophers with whom we might discuss the question regarding the future life of happiness, whether we can reach it by paying divine honours to the one true God, the Creator of all gods, or by worshipping many gods, and he will not expect us to repeat here the same argument, especially as, even if he has forgotten it, he may refresh his memory by reperusal. For we made selection of the Platonists, justly esteemed the noblest of the philosophers, because they had the wit to perceive that the human soul, immortal and rational, or intellectual as it is, cannot be happy except by partaking of the light of that God by whom both itself and the world were made, and also that the happy life which all men desire cannot be reached by any who does not cleave with a pure and holy love to that one supreme good, the unchangeable God. But as even these philosophers, whether accommodating to the folly and ignorance of the people, or, as the Apostle says, becoming vain in their imaginations, supposed or allowed others to suppose that many gods should be worshipped, so that some of them considered that divine honour by worship and sacrifice should be rendered even to the demons, an error I have already exploded, we must now, by God's help, ascertain what is thought about our religious worship and piety by those immortal and blessed spirits who dwell in the heavenly places among dominations, principalities, powers, whom the Platonists call gods, and some either good demons, or, like us, angels. That is to say, to put it more plainly, what are the angels desire us to offer sacrifice and worship, and to consecrate our possessions and ourselves, to them, or only to God, theirs and ours? For this is the worship which is due to the divinity, or to speak more accurately, to the deity. And to express this worship in a single word, as there does not occur to me any Latin term sufficiently exact, I shall avail myself, whenever necessary, of a Greek word. Latreo, whenever it occurs in scripture, is rendered by the word service. But that service which is due to men, and in reference to which the Apostle writes that servants must be subject to their own masters, is usually designated by another word in Greek, whereas the service which is paid to God alone by worship is always, or almost always, called latreia, in the usage of those who wrote from the divine oracles. This cannot so well be called simply cultus, for in that case it would not seem to be due exclusively to God. For the same word is applied to the respect we pay either to the memory or the living presence of men. From it, too, we derive the words agriculture, colonist, and others. And the heathen call their gods chelicole, not because they worship heaven, but because they dwell in it, and as it were colonize it, not in the sense in which we call those colonists who are attached to their native soil to cultivate it under the rule of the owners, but in the sense in which the great master of the Latin language says, there was an ancient city inhabited by Tyrian colonists. He called them colonists not because they cultivated the soil, but because they inhabited the city. So, too, cities that have hived off from larger cities are called colonies. Consequently, while it is quite true that using the word in a special sense, cult can be rendered to none but God, yet as the word is applied to other things besides, the cult due to God cannot in Latin be expressed by this word alone. 
The word religion might seem to express more definitely the worship due to God alone, and therefore Latin translators have used this word to represent threskea. Yet, as not only the uneducated, but also the best instructed, use the word religion to express human ties and relationships and affinities, it would inevitably introduce ambiguity to use this word in discussing the worship of God, unable as we are to say that religion is nothing else than the worship of God, without contradicting the common usage which applies this word to the observance of social relationships. Piety, again, or as the Greeks say, eusebeia, is commonly understood as the proper designation of the worship of God. Yet this word also is used of dutifulness to parents. The common people, too, use it of works of charity, which, I suppose, arises from the circumstance that God enjoins the performance of such works, and declares that he is pleased with them instead of, or in preference to, sacrifices. From this usage it has also come to pass that God himself is called pious, in which sense the Greeks never use eusebeia, though eusebeia is applied to works of charity by their common people also. In some passages of scripture, therefore, they have sought to preserve the distinction by using not eusebeia, the more general word, but theosebeia, which literally denotes the worship of God. We, on the other hand, cannot express either of these ideas by one word. This worship, then, which in Greek is called latreia, and in Latin servitus, but the service due to God only, this worship, which in Greek is called threskea, and in Latin religio, but the religion by which we are bound to God only, this worship which they call theosebea, but which we cannot express in one word, but call it the worship of God, this, we say, belongs only to that God who is the true God, and who makes his worshippers gods. And therefore, whoever these immortal and blessed inhabitants of heaven be, if they do not love us and wish us to be blessed, then we ought not to worship them. And if they do love us and desire our happiness, they cannot wish us to be made happy by any other means than they themselves have enjoyed. For how could they wish our blessedness to flow from one source, theirs from another? CHAPTER Two. But with these more estimable philosophers we have no dispute in this matter. For they perceived, and in various forms abundantly expressed in their writings, that these spirits have the same source of happiness as ourselves, a certain intelligible light which is their God, and is different from themselves, and illumines them, that they may be penetrated with light, and enjoy perfect happiness in the participation of God. Plotinus, commenting on Plato, repeatedly and strongly asserts that not even the soul which they believe to be the soul of the world derives its blessedness from any other source than we do, that is, from that light which is distinct from it and created it, and by whose intelligible illumination it enjoys light in things intelligible. He also compares those spiritual things to the vast and conspicuous heavenly bodies, as if God were the sun and the soul the moon, for they suppose that the moon derives its light from the sun. That great Platonist, therefore, says that the rational soul, or rather the intellectual soul, in which class he comprehends the souls of the blessed immortals who inhabit heaven, has no nature superior to it save God, the creator of the world, and the soul itself, and that these heavenly spirits derive their blessed life and the light of truth from the same source as ourselves, agreeing with the gospel, where we read, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of that light, that through him all might believe. He was not that light, but that he might bear witness of the light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. A distinction which sufficiently proves that the rational or intellectual soul such as John had cannot be its own light, but needs to receive illumination from another, the true light. 
This John himself avows when he delivers his witness. We have all received of his fullness. Chapter 3 this being so, if the Platonists, or those who think with them, knowing God, glorified him as God and gave thanks, if they did not become vain in their own thoughts, if they did not originate or yield to the popular errors, they would certainly acknowledge that neither could the blessed immortals retain, nor we miserable mortals reach, a happy condition without worshipping the one God of gods, who is both theirs and ours. To him we owe the service which is called in Greek Latreia, whether we render it outwardly or inwardly. For we are all his temple, each of us severally, and all of us together, because he condescends to inhabit each individually in the whole harmonious body, being no greater in all than in each, since he is neither expanded nor divided. Our heart, when it rises to him, is his altar. The priest who intercedes for us is his only begotten. We sacrifice to him bleeding victims, when we contend for his truth even unto blood. To him we offer the sweetest incense when we come before him burning with holy and pious love. To him we devote and surrender ourselves and his gifts in us. To him, by solemn feasts and on appointed days, we consecrate the memory of his benefits, lest through the lapse of time ungrateful oblivion should steal upon us. To him we offer on the altar of our heart the sacrifice of humility and praise, kindled by the fire of burning love. It is that we may see him so far as he can be seen. It is that we may cleave to him that we are cleansed from all stain of sins and evil passions, and are consecrated in his name. For he is the fountain of our happiness, he the end of all our desires. Being attached to him, or rather let me say reattached, for we had detached ourselves and lost hold of him, being, as I say, reattached to him, we tend towards him by love, that we may rest in him, and find our blessedness by attaining that end. For our good, about which philosophers have so keenly contended, is nothing else than to be united to God. It is, if I may say so, by spiritually embracing him that the intellectual soul is filled and impregnated with true virtues. We are enjoined to love this good with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. To this good we ought to be led by those who love us, and to lead those we love. Thus are fulfilled those two commandments on which hang all the law and the prophets. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy mind, and with all thy soul, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. For that man might be intelligent in his self-love, there was appointed for him an end to which he might refer all his actions, that he might be blessed. For he who loves himself wishes nothing else than this, and the end set before him is to draw near to God. And so, when one who has this intelligent self-love is commanded to love his neighbor as himself, what else is enjoined than that he shall do all in his power to commend to him the love of God? This is the worship of God, this is true religion, this right piety, this the service due to God only. If any immortal power, then, no matter with what virtue endowed, loves us as himself, he must desire that we find our happiness by submitting ourselves to him, in submission to whom he himself finds happiness. If he does not worship God, he is wretched, because deprived of God. If he worships God, he cannot wish to be worshipped in God's stead. On the contrary, these higher powers acquiesce heartily in the divine sentence in which it is written, he that sacrificeth unto any god, save unto the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. Chapter 4 But putting aside for the present the other religious services with which God is worshipped, certainly no man would dare to say that sacrifice is due to any but God. 
Many parts, indeed, of divine worship are unduly used in showing honour to men, whether through an excessive humility or pernicious flattery, yet while this is done those persons who are thus worshipped and venerated, or even adored, are reckoned no more than human. And who ever thought of sacrificing, save to one whom he knew, supposed, or feigned to be a god? And how ancient a part of God's worship sacrifice is, those two brothers, Cain and Abel, sufficiently show, of whom God rejected the elder's sacrifice, and looked favorably on the younger's. Chapter 5 And who is so foolish as to suppose that the things offered to God are needed by him for some uses of his own? Divine scripture in many places explodes this idea. Not to be wearisome, suffice it to quote this brief saying from a psalm, I have said to the Lord, Thou art my God, for thou needest not my goodness. We must believe, then, that God has no need not only of cattle or any other earthly and material thing, but even of man's righteousness, and that whatever right worship is paid to God profits not him, but man. For no man would say he did a benefit to a fountain by drinking, or to the light by seeing. And the fact that the ancient church offered animal sacrifices, which the people of God nowadays read of without imitating, proves nothing else than this, that those sacrifices signified the things which we do for the purpose of drawing near to God, and inducing our neighbor to do the same. A sacrifice, therefore, is the visible sacrament or sacred sign of an invisible sacrifice. Hence that penitent of the psalm, or it may be the psalmist himself, entreating God to be merciful to his sins, says, If thou desiredst sacrifice, I would give it. Thou delightest not in whole burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God is a broken heart. A heart contrite and humble, God will not despise. Observe how, in the very words in which he is expressing God's refusal of sacrifice, he shows that God requires sacrifice. He does not desire the sacrifice of a slaughtered beast, but he desires the sacrifice of a contrite heart. Thus, that sacrifice which he says God does not wish, is the symbol of the sacrifice which God does wish. God does not wish sacrifices in the sense in which foolish people think he wishes them, that is, to gratify his own pleasure. For if he had not wished that the sacrifices he requires, as, for example, a heart contrite and humbled by penitent sorrow, should be symbolized by those sacrifices which he was thought to desire because pleasant to himself, the old law would never have enjoined their presentation, and they were destined to be merged when the fit opportunity arrived, in order that men might not suppose that the sacrifices themselves, rather than the things symbolized by them, were pleasing to God or acceptable in us. Hence, in another passage from another psalm, he says, If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine in the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? As if he should say, Supposing such things were necessary to me, I would never ask thee for what I have in my own hand. Then he goes on to mention what these signify. Offer unto God the sacrifice of praise, and pay thy vows unto the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. So in another prophet, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Hath he showed thee, O man, what is good? And what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? 
In the words of this prophet, these two things are distinguished and set forth with sufficient explicitness that God does not require these sacrifices for their own sakes, and that he does require the sacrifices which they symbolize. In the epistle entitled To the Hebrews it is said, To do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And so, when it is written, I desire mercy rather than sacrifice, nothing else is meant than that one sacrifice is preferred to another, for that which in common speech is called sacrifice is only the symbol of the true sacrifice. Now mercy is the true sacrifice, and therefore it is said, as I have just quoted, with such sacrifices God is well pleased. All the divine ordinances, therefore, which we read concerning the sacrifices in the service of the tabernacle or the temple, we are to refer to the love of God and our neighbor. For on these two commandments, as it is written, hang all the law and the prophets. Chapter 6 Thus a true sacrifice is every work which is done that we may be united to God in holy fellowship, and which has a reference to that supreme good and end in which alone we can be truly blessed. And therefore even the mercy we show to men, if it is not shown for God's sake, is not a sacrifice. For though made or offered by man, sacrifice is a divine thing, as those who called it sacrifice meant to indicate. Thus man himself, consecrated in the name of God, and vowed to God, is a sacrifice, in so far as he dies to the world that he may live to God. For this is a part of that mercy which each man shows to himself, as it is written, Have mercy on thy soul by pleasing God. Our body, too, is a sacrifice when we chasten it by temperance, if we do so as we ought, for God's sake, that we may not yield our members instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but instruments of righteousness unto God. Exhorting to this sacrifice, the apostle says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. If then the body, which being inferior, the soul uses as a servant or instrument, is a sacrifice when it is used rightly, and with reference to God, how much more does the soul itself become a sacrifice when it offers itself to God, in order that, being inflamed by the fire of his love, it may receive of his beauty and become pleasing to him, losing the shape of earthly desire, and being remoulded in the image of permanent loveliness? And this indeed the apostle subjoins, saying, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed in the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Since therefore true sacrifices are works of mercy to ourselves or others, done with a reference to God, and since works of mercy have no other object than the relief of distress or the conferring of happiness, and since there is no happiness apart from that good of which it is said, It is good for me to be very near to God, it follows that the whole redeemed city, that is to say, the congregation or community of the saints, is offered to God as our sacrifice through the great high priest, who offered himself to God in his passion for us, that we might be members of this glorious head, according to the form of a servant. For it was this form he offered, in this he was offered, because it is according to it he is mediator, in this he is our priest, in this the sacrifice. Accordingly, when the apostle had exhorted us to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, our reasonable service, and not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed in the renewing of our mind, that we might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, 
that is to say, the true sacrifice of ourselves, he says, For I say, through the grace of God which is given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For, as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another, having gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. This is the sacrifice of Christians, we, being many, are one body in Christ. And this also is the sacrifice which the church continually celebrates in the sacrament of the altar, known to the faithful, in which she teaches that she herself is offered in the offering she makes to God. CHAPTER Seven. It is very right that these blessed and immortal spirits who inhabit celestial dwellings, and rejoice in the communications of their Creator's fullness, firm in His eternity, assured in His truth, holy by His grace, since they compassionately and tenderly regard us miserable mortals, and wish us to become immortal and happy, do not desire us to sacrifice to themselves, but to Him whose sacrifice they know themselves to be in common with us. For we and they together are the one city of God, to which it is said in the psalm, Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God, the human part sojourning here below, the angelic aiding from above. For from that heavenly city, in which God's will is the intelligible and unchangeable law, from that heavenly council chamber, for they sit in council regarding us, that holy scripture descended to us by the ministry of the angels, in which it is written, He that sacrificeth unto any god, save unto the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. This scripture, this law, these precepts, have been confirmed by such miracles, that it is sufficiently evident to whom these immortal and blessed spirits, who desire us to be like themselves, wish us to sacrifice. CHAPTER Eight. I should seem tedious were I to recount all the ancient miracles which were wrought in attestation of God's promises which he made to Abraham thousands of years ago, that in his seed all the nations of the earth should be blessed. For who can but marvel that Abraham's barren wife should have given birth to a son at an age when not even a prolific woman could bear children? Or again, that when Abraham sacrificed, a flame from heaven should have run between the divided parts? Or that the angels in human form, whom he had hospitably entertained, and who had renewed God's promise of offspring, should also have predicted the destruction of Sodom by fire from heaven? and that his nephew Lot should have been rescued from Sodom by the angels as the fire was just descending, while his wife, who looked back as she went, and was immediately turned into salt, stood as a sacred beacon warning us that no one who was being saved should long for what he is leaving. How striking also were the wonders done by Moses to rescue God's people from the yoke of slavery in Egypt, when the magi of the Pharaoh, that is, the king of Egypt, who tyrannized over this people, were suffered to do some wonderful things that they might be vanquished all the more signally. They did these things by the magical arts and incantations to which the evil spirits or demons are addicted while Moses, having as much greater power as he had right on his side, and having the aid of angels, easily conquered them in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And, in fact, the magicians failed the third plague, whereas Moses, dealing out the miracles delegated to him, brought ten plagues upon the land, so that the hard hearts of Pharaoh and the Egyptians yielded, and the people were let go. But quickly repenting, and essaying to overtake the departing Hebrews, who had crossed the sea on dry ground, they were covered and overwhelmed in the returning waters. 
What shall I say of those frequent and stupendous exhibitions of divine power, while the people were conducted through the wilderness, of the waters which could not be drunk, but lost their bitterness, and quenched the thirsty, when at God's command a piece of wood was cast into them, of the manna that descended from heaven to appease their hunger, and which begat worms and putrefied when any one collected more than the appointed quantity, and yet, though double was gathered on the day before the Sabbath, it not being lawful to gather it on that day, remained fresh, of the birds which filled the camp and turned appetite into satiety when they longed for flesh which it seemed impossible to supply to so vast a population of the enemies who met them and opposed their passage with arms and were defeated without the loss of a single hebrew when moses prayed with his hands extended in the form of a cross of the seditious persons who arose among God's people, and separated themselves from the divinely ordered community, and were swallowed up alive by the earth, a visible token of an invisible punishment. Of the rocks struck with the rod, and pouring out waters more than enough for all the host. Of the deadly serpent's bites, sent in just punishment of sin, but healed by looking at the lifted brazen serpent, so that not only were the tormented people healed, but a symbol of the crucifixion of death sat before them in this destruction of death by death. It was this serpent which was preserved in memory of this event, and was afterwards worshipped by the mistaken people as an idol, and was destroyed by the pious and God-fearing king Hezekiah, much to his credit. CHAPTER nine. These miracles, and many others of the same nature, which it were tedious to mention, were wrought for the purpose of commending the worship of the one true God, and prohibiting the worship of a multitude of false gods. Moreover, they were wrought by simple faith and godly confidence, not by the incantations and charms composed under the influence of cr a criminal tampering with the unseen world, of an art which they call either magic, or by the more abominable title necromancy, or the more honourable designation theurgy. For they wished to discriminate between those whom the people call magicians, who practice necromancy, and are addicted to illicit arts and condemned, and those others who seem to them to be worthy of praise for their practice of theurgy. The truth, however, being that both classes are the slaves of the deceitful rites of the demons, whom they invoke under the names of angels. For even Porphyry promises some kind of purgation of the soul by the help of theurgy, though he does so with some hesitation and shame, and denies that this art can secure to any one a return to God, so that you can detect his opinion vacillating between the profession of philosophy and an art which he feels to be presumptuous and sacrilegious for at one time he warns us to avoid it as deceitful and prohibited by law and dangerous to those who practise it then again as if in deference to his advocates he declares it useful for cleansing one part of the soul not indeed the intellectual part by which the truth of things intelligible which have no sensible images is recognised but the spiritual part which takes cognizance of the images of things material this part, he says, is prepared and fitted for intercourse with spirits and angels, and for the vision of the gods, by the help of certain theurgic consecrations, or, as they call them, mysteries. He acknowledges, however, that these theurgic mysteries impart to the intellectual soul no such purity as fits it to see its god, and recognize the things that truly exist. And from this acknowledgment we may infer what kind of gods these are, and what kind of vision of them is imparted by theurgic consecrations, if by it one cannot see the things which truly exist. He says further that the rational, or as he prefers calling it, the intellectual soul, can pass into the heavens without the spiritual part being cleansed by theurgic art, and that this art cannot so purify the spiritual part as to give it entrance to immortality and eternity. 
and therefore although he distinguishes angels from demons asserting that the habitation of the latter is in the air while the former dwell in the ether and empyrean and although he advises us to cultivate the friendship of some demon who may be able after our death to assist us and elevate us at least a little above the earth for he owns that it is by another way we must reach the heavenly society of the angels he at the same time distinctly warns us to avoid the society of demons saying that the soul expiating its sin after death execrates the worship of demons by whom it was entangled and of theurgy itself though he recommends it as reconciling angels and demons he cannot deny that it treats with powers which out of themselves envy the soul its purity or serve the arts of those who do envy it he complains of this through the mouth of some chaldean or other a good man in chaldea complains he says that his most strenuous efforts to cleanse his soul were frustrated because another man who had influence in these matters and who envied him purity had prayed to the powers and bound them by his conjuring not to listen to his request therefore adds porphyry what the one man bound the other could not loose and from this he concludes that theurgy is a craft which accomplishes not only good but evil among gods and men and that the gods also have passions and are perturbed and agitated by the emotions which apuleius attributed to demons and men but from which he preserved the gods by that sublimity of residence which in common with plato he accorded to them chapter ten but here we have another and a much more learned platonist than apuleius porphyry to wit asserting that by i know not what theurgy even the gods themselves are subjected to passions and perturbations for by adjurations they were so bound and terrified that they could not confer a purity of soul were so terrified by him who imposed on them a wicked command that they could not by the same theurgy be freed from that terror and fulfil the righteous behest of him who prayed to them or do the good he sought who does not see that all these things are fictions of deceiving demons unless he be a wretched slave of theirs and an alien from the grace of the true liberator for if the chaldean had been dealing with good gods certainly a well-disposed man who sought to purify his own soul would have had more influence with them than an evil-disposed man seeking to hinder him or if the gods were just and considered the man unworthy of the purification he sought at all events they should not have been terrified by an envious person nor hindered as porphyry avows by the fear of a stronger deity but should have simply denied the boon on their own free judgment and it is surprising that that well-disposed chaldean who desired to purify his soul by theurgical rites found no superior deity who could either terrify the frightened gods still more and force them to confer the boon or compose their fears and so enable them to do good without compulsion even supposing that the good theurgist had no rites by which he himself might purge away the taint of fear from the gods whom he invoked for the purification of his own soul and why is it that there is a god who has power to terrify the inferior gods and none who has power to free them from fear is there found a god who listens to the envious man and frightens the gods from doing good and is there not found a god who listens to the well-disposed man and removes the fear of the gods that they may do him good o oh, excellent theurgy o oh, admirable purification of the soul a theurgy in which the violence of an impure envy has more influence than the entreaty of purity and holiness rather let us abominate and avoid the deceit of such wicked spirits and listen to sound doctrine 
As to those who perform these filthy cleansings by sacrilegious rites, and see in their initiated state, as he further tells us, though we may question this vision, certain wonderfully lovely appearances of angels or gods, this is what the apostle refers to when he speaks of Satan transforming himself into an angel of light. For these are the delusive appearances of that spirit who longs to entangle wretched souls in the deceptive worship of many and false gods, and to turn them aside from the true worship of the true God, by whom alone they are cleansed and healed, and who, as was said of Proteus, turns himself into all shapes, equally hurtful whether he assaults us as an enemy, or assumes the disguise of a friend. Chapter 11 it was a better tone which Porphyry adopted in his letter to Anibo the Egyptian, in which, assuming the character of an inquirer consulting him, he unmasks and explodes these sacrilegious arts. In that letter, indeed, he repudiates all demons whom he maintains to be so foolish as to be attracted by the sacrificial vapours, and therefore residing not in the ether, but in the air beneath the moon, and indeed in the moon itself. Yet he has not the boldness to attribute to all the demons all the deceptions and malicious and foolish practices which justly move his indignation. For though he acknowledges that as a race demons are foolish, he so far accommodates himself to popular ideas as to call some of them benignant demons. He expresses surprise that sacrifices not only incline the gods, but also compel and force them to do what men wish, and he is at a loss to understand how the sun and moon and other visible celestial bodies, for bodies he does not doubt that they are, are considered gods if the gods are distinguished from the demons by their incorporeality. Also, if they are gods, how some are called beneficent, and others hurtful, and how they, being corporeal, are numbered with the gods who are incorporeal. He inquires further, and still as one in doubt, whether diviners and wonder-workers are men of unusually powerful souls, or whether the power to do these things is communicated by spirits from without. He inclines to the latter opinion, on the ground that it is by the use of stones and herbs that they lay spells on people, and open closed doors, and do similar wonders. And on this account, he says, some suppose that there is a race of beings whose property it is to listen to men a race deceitful, full of contrivances, capable of assuming all forms, simulating gods, demons, and dead men, and that it is this race which bring about all these things which have the appearance of good or evil, but that what is really good they never help us in, and are indeed unacquainted with, for they make wickedness easy, but throw obstacles in the path of those who eagerly follow virtue, and that they are filled with pride and rashness, delight in sacrificial odours, are taken with flattery. These and the other characteristics of this race of deceitful and malicious spirits, who come into the souls of men and delude their senses, both in sleep and waking, he describes not as things of which he is himself convinced, but only with so much suspicion and doubt as to cause him to speak of them as commonly received opinions. We should sympathize with this great philosopher in the difficulty he experienced in acquainting himself with and confidently assailing the whole fraternity of devils, which any Christian old woman would unhesitatingly describe and most unreservedly detest. Perhaps, however, he shrank from offending Anibo, to whom he was writing, himself the most eminent patron of these mysteries, or the others who marveled at these magical feats as divine works, and closely allied to the worship of the gods. However, he pursues this subject, and, still in the character of an inquirer, mentions some things which no sober judgment could attribute to any but malicious and deceitful powers. He asks why, after the better class of spirits have been invoked, the worst should be commanded to perform the wicked desires of men. 
why they do not hear a man who has just left a woman's embrace, while they themselves make no scruple of tempting men to incest and adultery, why their priests are commanded to abstain from animal food for fear of being polluted by the corporeal exhalations, while they themselves are attracted by the fumes of sacrifices and other exhalations, why the initiated are forbidden to touch a dead body, while their mysteries are celebrated almost entirely by means of dead bodies, why it is that a man addicted to any vice should utter threats, not to a demon or to the soul of a dead man, but to the sun and moon, or some of the heavenly bodies, which he intimidates by imaginary terrors, that he may wring from them a real boon, for he threatens that he will demolish the sky and such like impossibilities, that those gods, being alarmed like silly children with imaginary and absurd threats, may do what they are ordered. Porphyry further relates that a man, Caraman, profoundly versed in these sacred or rather sacrilegious mysteries had written that the famous egyptian mysteries of isis and her husband osiris had very great influence with the gods to compel them to do what they were ordered when he who used the spells threatened to divulge or do away with these mysteries and cried with a threatening voice that he would scatter the members of osiris if they neglected his orders not without reason is porphyry surprised that a man should utter such wild and empty threats against the gods not against gods of no account, but against the heavenly gods, and those that shine with sidereal light, and that these threats should be effectual to constrain them with resistless power, and alarm them so that they fulfil his wishes. Not without reason does he, in the character of an inquirer into the reasons of these surprising things, give it to be understood that they are done by that race of spirits which he previously described as if quoting other people's opinions spirits who deceive not as he said by nature but by their own corruption and who simulate gods and dead men but not as he said demons for demons they really are as to his idea that by means of herbs and stones and animals and certain incantations and noises and drawings sometimes fanciful and sometimes copied from the motions of the heavenly bodies men create upon earth powers capable of bringing about various results all that is only the mystification which these demons practise on those who are subject to them for the sake of furnishing themselves with merriment at the expense of their dupes Either then Porphyry was sincere in his doubts and inquiries, and mentioned these things to demonstrate and put beyond question that they were the work, not of powers which aid us in obtaining life, but of deceitful demons, or, to take a more favourable view of the philosopher, he adopted this method with the Egyptian who was wedded to these errors, and was proud of them, that he might not offend him by assuming the attitude of a teacher, nor discompose his mind by the altercation of a professed assailant, but, by assuming the character of an inquirer, and the humble attitude of one who was anxious to learn, might turn his attention to these matters, and show how worthy they are to be despised and relinquished. Towards the conclusion of his letter he requests Sanibo to inform him what the Egyptian wisdom indicates as the way to blessedness. But as to those who hold intercourse with the gods, and pester them only for the sake of finding a runaway slave, or acquiring property, or making a bargain of a marriage, or such things, he declares that their pretensions to wisdom are vain. He adds that these same gods, even granting that on other points their utterances were true, were yet so ill-advised and unsatisfactory in their disclosures about blessedness, that they cannot be either gods or good demons, but are either that spirit who is called the deceiver, or mere fictions of the imagination. Chapter 12 
since by means of these arts wonders are done which quite surpass human power what choice have we but to believe that these predictions and operations would seem to be miraculous and divine and which at the same time form no part of the worship of the one god in adherence to whom as the platonists themselves abundantly testify all blessedness consists are the pastime of wicked spirits who thus seek to seduce and hinder the truly godly on the other hand we cannot but believe that all miracles whether wrought by angels or by other means so long as they are so done as to commend the worship and religion of the one god in whom alone is blessedness are wrought by those who love us in a true and godly sort or through their means god himself working in them for we cannot listen to those who maintain that the invisible god works no visible miracles for even they believe that he made the world which surely they will not deny to be visible whatever marvel happens in this world it is certainly less marvellous than this whole world itself i mean the sky and earth and all that is in them and these god certainly made but as the creator himself is hidden and incomprehensible to man so also is the manner of creation although therefore the standing miracle of this visible world is little thought of because always before us yet when we arouse ourselves to contemplate it it is a greater miracle than the rarest and most unheard of marvels for man himself is a greater miracle than any miracle done through his instrumentality therefore god who made the visible heaven and earth does not disdain to work visible miracles in heaven or earth that he may thereby awaken the soul which is immersed in things visible to worship himself the invisible but the place and time of these miracles are dependent on his unchangeable will in which things future are ordered as if already they were accomplished for he moves things temporal without himself moving in time he does not in one way know that things are to be and in another things that have been neither does he listen to those who pray otherwise than as he sees those that will pray for even when his angels hear us it is he himself who hears us in them as in his true temple not made with hands as in those men who are his saints and his answers though accomplished in time have been arranged by his eternal appointment chapter thirteen neither need we be surprised that god invisible as he is should often have appeared visibly to the patriarchs for as the sound which communicates the thought conceived in the silence of the mind is not the thought itself so the form by which god invisible in his own nature became visible was not god himself nevertheless it is he himself who was seen under that form as that thought itself is heard in the sound of the voice and the patriarchs recognized that though the bodily form was not god they saw the invisible god for though moses conversed with god yet he said if i have found grace in thy sight show me thyself that i may see and know thee and as it was fit that the law which was given not to one man or a few enlightened men but to the whole of a populous nation should be accompanied by awe-inspiring signs great marvels were wrought by the ministry of angels before the people on the mount where the law was being given to them through one man while the multitude beheld the awful appearances for the people of Israel believed Moses, not as the Lacedaemonians believed their Lycurgus, because he had received from Jupiter or Apollo the laws he gave them. For when the law which enjoined the worship of one God was given to the people, marvellous signs and earthquakes, such as the divine wisdom judged sufficient, were brought about in the sight of all, that they might know that it was the Creator who could thus use creation to promulgate his law. CHAPTER fourteen the education of the human race represented by the people of god has advanced like that of an individual through certain epochs or as it were ages so that it might gradually rise from earthly to heavenly things and from the visible to the invisible 
This object was kept so clearly in view that even in the period when temporal rewards were promised, the one God was presented as the object of worship, that men might not acknowledge any other than the true Creator and Lord of the Spirit, even in connection with the earthly blessings of this transitory life. For he who denies that all things which either angels or men can give us are in the hand of the one Almighty is a madman. The Platonist Plotinus discourses concerning providence, and from the beauty of flowers and foliage proves that from the supreme God, whose beauty is unseen and ineffable, providence reaches down even to these earthly things here below. And he argues that all these frail and perishing things could not have so exquisite and elaborate a beauty, were they not fashioned by him whose unseen and unchangeable beauty continually pervades all things. This is proved also by the Lord Jesus, where he says, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which to-day is, and to-morrow is cast into the oven, how much more shall he clothe you, O ye of little faith? It was best, therefore, that the soul of man, which was still weakly desiring earthly things, should be accustomed to seek from God alone even these petty temporal boons, and the earthly necessaries of this transitory life, which are contemptible in comparison with eternal blessings, in order that the desire even of these things might not draw it aside from the worship of him to whom we come by despising and forsaking such things. CHAPTER fifteen. And so it has pleased divine providence, as I have said, and as we read in the Acts of the Apostles, that the law enjoining the worship of one God should be given by the disposition of angels. But among them the person of God himself visibly appeared, not indeed in his proper substance, which ever remains invisible to mortal eyes, but by the infallible signs furnished by creation in obedience to its Creator. He made use, too, of the words of human speech, uttering them syllable by syllable successively, though in his own nature he speaks not in a bodily, but in a spiritual way, not to sense, but to the mind, not in words that occupy time, but, if I may say so, eternally, neither beginning to speak, nor coming to an end. And what he says is accurately heard, not by the bodily, but by the mental ear of his ministers and messengers, who are immortally blessed in the enjoyment of his unchangeable truth, and the directions which they in some ineffable way receive, they execute without delay or difficulty in the sensible and visible world. And this law was given in conformity with the age of the world, and contained at the first earthly promises, as I have said, which, however, symbolized eternal ones, and these eternal blessings few understood, though many took a part in the celebration of their visible signs. Nevertheless, with one consent both the words and the visible rites of that law enjoined the worship of one God, not one of a crowd of gods, but him who made heaven and earth, and every soul and every spirit which is other than himself. He created, all else was created, and, both for being and well-being, all things need him who created them. CHAPTER Sixteen. What angels, then, are we to believe in this matter of blessed and eternal life? Those who wish to be worshipped with religious rites and observances, and require that men sacrifice to them, or those who say that all this worship is due to one God, the Creator, and teach us to render it with true piety to Him, by the vision of whom they are themselves already blessed, and in whom they promise that we shall be so. For that vision of God is the beauty of a vision so great, and is so infinitely desirable, that Plotinus does not hesitate to say that he who enjoys all other blessings in abundance, and has not this, is supremely miserable. 
Since, therefore, miracles are wrought by some angels to induce us to worship this God, by others to induce us to worship themselves, and since the former forbid us to worship these, while the latter dare not forbid us to worship God, which are we to listen to? Let the Platonists reply, or any philosophers, or the Theurgists, or rather Periurgists, for this name is good enough for those who practice such arts. In short, let all men answer, if at least there survives in them any spark of that natural perception which, as rational beings, they possess when created. Let them, I say, tell us whether we should sacrifice to the gods or angels who order us to sacrifice to them, or to that one to whom we are ordered to sacrifice, by those who forbid us to worship either themselves or these others. If neither the one party nor the other had wrought miracles, but had merely uttered commands, the one to sacrifice to themselves, the other forbidding that, and ordering us to sacrifice to God, a godly mind would have been at no loss to discern which command proceeded from proud arrogance, and which from true religion. I will say more. If miracles had been wrought only by those who demand sacrifice for themselves, while those who forbade this, and enjoined sacrificing to the one God only, thought fit entirely to forego the use of visible miracles, the authority of the latter was to be preferred by all who would use, not their eyes only, but their reason. But since God, for the sake of commending to us the oracles of his truth, has, by means of these immortal messengers, who proclaim his majesty, and not their own pride, wrought miracles of surpassing grandeur, certainty, and distinctness, in order that the weak among the godly might not be drawn away to false religion by those who require us to sacrifice to them, and endeavor to convince us by stupendous appeals to our senses, who is so utterly unreasonable as not to choose and follow the truth, when he finds that it is heralded by even more striking evidences than falsehood. As for those miracles which history ascribes to the gods of the heathen, I do not refer to those prodigies which at intervals happen from some unknown physical causes, and which are arranged and appointed by divine providence, such as monstrous births and unusual meteorological phenomena, whether startling only, or also injurious, and which are said to be brought about and removed by communication with demons, and by their most deceitful craft but I refer to these prodigies which manifestly enough are wrought by their power and force, as that the household gods which Aeneas carried from Troy in his flight moved from place to place, that Tarquin cut a whetstone with a razor, that the Epidaurian serpent attached himself as a companion to Aesculapius on his voyage to Rome, that the ship in which the image of the Phrygian mother stood, and which could not be moved by a host of men and oxen, was moved by one weak woman who attached her girdle to the vessel and drew it, as proof of her chastity, that a vestal, whose virginity was questioned, removed the suspicion by carrying from the Tiber a sieve full of water without any of it dropping. These, then, and the like, are by no means to be compared for greatness and virtue to those which we read were wrought among God's people. How much less can we compare those marvels which even the laws of heathen nations prohibit and punish? I mean the magical and theurgic marvels, of which the great part are merely illusions practised upon the senses, as the drawing down of the moon, that, as Lucan says, it may shed a stronger influence in the plants. And if some of these do seem to equal those which are wrought by the godly, the end for which they are wrought distinguishes the two, and shows that ours are incomparably the more excellent. For those miracles commend the worship of a plurality of gods, who deserve worship the less the more they demand it, but these of ours commend the worship of the one God, who, both by the testimony of his own scriptures, and by the eventual abolition of sacrifices, proves that he needs no such offerings. If, therefore, any angels demand sacrifice for themselves, we must prefer those who demand it not for themselves, but for God, the creator of all whom they serve. 
for thus they prove how sincerely they love us, since they wish by sacrifice to subject us not to themselves, but to him by the contemplation of whom they themselves are blessed, and to bring us to him from whom they themselves have never strayed. If, on the other hand, any angels wish us to sacrifice not to one, but to many, not indeed to themselves, but to the gods whose angels they are, we must in this case also prefer those who are the angels of the one God of gods, and who so bid us to worship him as to preclude our worshipping any other. But further, if it be the case, as their pride and deceitfulness rather indicate, that they are neither good angels nor the angels of good gods, but wicked demons, who wish sacrifice to be paid, not to the one only and supreme God, but to themselves, what better protection against them can we choose than that of the one God whom the good angels serve, the angels who bid us sacrifice, not to themselves, but to him whose sacrifice we ourselves ought to be? Chapter 17 on this account it was that the law of God, given by the disposition of angels, and which commanded that the one God of gods alone receives sacred worship, to the exclusion of all others, was deposited in the ark, called the ark of the testimony. By this name it is sufficiently indicated not that God, who is worshipped by all those rites, was shut up and enclosed in that place, though his responses emanated from it along with signs appreciable by the senses, but that his will was declared from that throne. The law itself, too, was engraven on tables of stone, and, as I have said, deposited in an ark, which the priests carried with due reverence during the sojourn in the wilderness, along with the tabernacle, which was in like manner called the tabernacle of the testimony. And there was then an accompanying sign, which appeared as a cloud by day, and as a fire by night. When the cloud moved, the camp was shifted, and where it stood the camp was pitched. Besides these signs, and the voices which proceeded from the place where the ark was, there were other miraculous testimonies to the law. For when the ark was carried across Jordan on the entrance to the land of promise, the upper part of the river stopped in its course, and the lower part flowed on, so as to present both to the ark and the people dry ground to pass over. Then, when it was carried seven times round the first hostile and polytheistic city they came to, its walls suddenly fell down, though assaulted by no hand, struck by no battering-ram. Afterwards, too, when they were now resident in the land of promise, and the ark had, in punishment of their sin, been taken by their enemies, its captors triumphantly placed it in the temple of their favorite god, and left it shut up there, but on opening the temple the next day, they found the image they used to pray to fallen to the ground, and shamefully shattered. Then, being themselves alarmed by portents, and still more shamefully punished, they restored the ark of the testimony to the people from whom they had taken it. And what was the manner of its restoration? They placed it on a wagon, and yoked it to cows from which they had taken the calves, and let them choose their own course, expecting that in this way the divine will would be indicated. And the cows, without any man driving or directing them, steadily pursued the way to the Hebrews, without regarding the lowing of their calves, and thus restored the ark to its worshippers. To God these and such like wonders are small, but they are mighty to terrify and give wholesome instruction to men. For if philosophers, and especially the Platonists, are with justice esteemed wiser than other men, as I have just been mentioning, because they taught that even these earthly and insignificant things are ruled by divine providence, inferring this from the numberless beauties which are observable not only in the bodies of animals, but even in plants and grasses, how much more plainly do these things attest the presence of divinity which happened at the time predicted, and in which that religion is commended which forbids the offering of sacrifice to any celestial, terrestrial, 
terrestrial or infernal being, and commands it to be offered to God only, who alone blesses us by his love for us, and by our love to him, and who, by arranging the appointed times of those sacrifices, and by predicting that they were to pass into a better sacrifice by a better priest, testified that he has no appetite for these sacrifices, but through them indicated others of more substantial blessing, and all this not that he himself may be glorified by these honours, but that we may be stirred up to worship and cleave to him, being inflamed by his love, which is our advantage rather than his. End of Book 10, Chapters 1-17 through 17. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org Book 10, Chapters 18-32 through 32 of The City of God This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo Book 10 Chapter 18 Will someone say that these miracles are false, that they never happened, and that the records of them are lies? Whoever says so, and asserts that in such matters no records whatever can be credited, may also say that there are no gods who care for human affairs. For they have induced men to worship them only by means of miraculous works, which the heathen histories testify, and by which the gods have made a display of their own power, rather than done any real service. This is the reason why we have not undertaken in this work, of which we are now writing the tenth book, to refute those who either deny that there is any divine power, or contend that it does not interfere with human affairs, but to those who prefer their own God to our God, the founder of the holy and most glorious city, not knowing that he is also the invisible and unchangeable founder of this visible and changing world, and the truest bestower of the blessed life which resides not in things created, but in himself. For thus speaks his most trustworthy prophet, It is good for me to be united to God. Among philosophers it is a question, What is that end and good to the attainment of which all our duties are to have a relation? The psalmist did not say, It is good for me to have great wealth, or to wear imperial insignia, purple, scepter, and diadem, or, as some even of the philosophers have not blushed to say, It is good for me to enjoy sensual pleasure, or, as the better men among them seem to say, my good is my spiritual strength, but it is good for me to be united to God. This he had learned from him whom the holy angels, with the accompanying witness of miracles, presented as the sole object of worship. And hence he himself became the sacrifice of God, whose spiritual love inflamed him, and into whose ineffable and incorporeal embrace he yearned to cast himself. Moreover, if the worshippers of many gods, whatever kind of gods they fancy their own to be, believe that the miracles recorded in their civil histories, or in the books of magic, or of the more respectable theurgy, were wrought by these gods, what reason have they for refusing to believe the miracles recorded in those writings to which we owe a credence as much greater as he is greater, to whom alone these writings teach us to sacrifice? Chapter 19 
As to those who think that these visible sacrifices are suitably offered to other gods, but that invisible sacrifices, the graces of purity of mind and holiness of will, should be offered as greater and better to the invisible God, himself greater and better than all others, they must be oblivious that these visible sacrifices are signs of the invisible, as the words we utter are the signs of things. And therefore, as in prayer or praise we direct intelligible words to him to whom in our heart we offer the very feelings we are expressing, so we are to understand that in sacrifice we offer visible sacrifice only to him to whom in our heart we ought to present ourselves in invisible sacrifice. It is then that the angels, and all those superior powers who are mighty by their goodness and piety, regard us with pleasure, and rejoice with us, and assist us to the utmost of their power. But if we offer such worship to them, they decline it, and when on any mission to men they become visible to the senses, they positively forbid it. Examples of this occur in holy writ. Some fancied they should, by adoration or sacrifice, pay the same honor to angels as is due to God, and were prevented from doing so by the angels themselves, in order to render it to him to whom alone they knew it to be due. And the holy angels have in this been imitated by holy men of God. For Paul and Barnabas, when they had wrought a miracle of healing in Lyconia, were thought to be gods, and the Lyconians desired to sacrifice to them, and they humbly and piously declined this honor, and announced to them the God in whom they should believe. And those deceitful and proud spirits who exact worship do so simply because they know it to be due to the true God. For that which they take pleasure in is not, as Porphyry says, and some fancy, the smell of the victims, but divine honors. They have, in fact, plenty odors on all hands, and if they wished more, they could provide them for themselves. But the spirits who arrogate to themselves divinity are delighted not with the smoke of carcasses, but with a suppliant spirit which they deceive and hold in subjection, and hinder from drawing near to God, preventing him from offering himself in sacrifice to God, by inducing him to sacrifice to others. CHAPTER Twenty. And hence that true mediator, in so far as, by assuming the form of a servant, he became the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, though in the form of God he received sacrifice together with the Father, with whom he is one God, yet in the form of a servant he chose rather to be than to receive a sacrifice, that not even by this instance any one might have occasion to suppose that sacrifice should be rendered to any creature. Thus he is both the priest who offers, and the sacrifice offered. And he designed that there should be a daily sign of this in the sacrifice of the church, which, being his body, learns to offer herself through him. Of this true sacrifice the ancient sacrifices of the saints were the various and numerous signs, and it was thus variously figured, just as one thing is signified by a variety of words, that there may be less weariness when we speak of it much. To this supreme and true sacrifice all false sacrifices have given place. CHAPTER Twenty One, The power delegated to the demons at certain appointed and well-adjusted seasons, that they may give expression to their hostility to the city of God by stirring up against it the men who are under their influence, and may not only receive sacrifice from those who willingly offer it, but may also extort it from the unwilling by violent persecution, this power is found to be not merely harmless, but even useful to the church, completing as it does the number of martyrs, whom the city of God esteems as all the more illustrious and honoured citizens, because they have striven even to blood against the sin of impiety. If the ordinary language of the church allowed it, we might more elegantly call these men our heroes. 
for this name is said to be derived from Juno, who in Greek is called Here, and hence, according to the Greek myths, one of her sons was called Heros. And these fables mystically signified that Juno was mistress of the air, which they supposed to be inhabited by the demons and the heroes, understanding by heroes the souls of the well-deserving dead. But for a quite opposite reason would we call our martyrs heroes, supposing, as I said, that the usage of ecclesiastical language would admit of it, not because they lived along with the demons in the air, but because they conquered these demons or powers of the air, and among them Juno herself, be she what she may, not unsuitably represented, as she commonly is by the poets, as hostile to virtue, and jealous of men of mark aspiring to the heavens. Virgil, however, unhappily gives way, and yields to her. For though he represents her as saying, I am conquered by Aeneas, Helenus gives Aeneas himself this religious advice. Pay vows to Juno, overbear her queenly soul with gift and prayer. In conformity with this opinion, Porphyry, expressing, however, not so much his own views as other people's, says that a good god or genius cannot come to a man unless the evil genius has been first of all propitiated, implying that the evil deities had greater power than the good. For until they have been appeased and give place, the good can give no assistance, and if the evil deities oppose, the good can give no help, whereas the evil can do injury without the good being able to prevent them. This is not the way of the true and truly holy religion. Not thus do our martyrs conquer Juno, that is to say, the powers of the air, who envy the virtues of the pious. Our heroes, if we could so call them, overcome Here, not by suppliant gifts, but by divine virtues. As Scipio, who conquered Africa by his valour, is more suitably styled Africanus than if he had appeased his enemies by gifts, and so won their mercy. CHAPTER Twenty Two. It is by true piety that men of God cast out the hostile power of the air which opposes godliness. It is by exorcising it, not by propitiating it. And they overcome all the temptations of the adversary by praying, not to him, but to their own God against him. For the devil cannot conquer or subdue any but those who are in league with sin, and therefore he is conquered in the name of him who assumed humanity, and that without sin, that himself, being both priest and sacrifice, he might bring about the remission of sins, that is to say, might bring it about through the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, by whom we are reconciled to God, the cleansing from sin being accomplished. For men are separated from God only by sins, from which we are in this life cleansed not by our own virtue, but by the divine compassion, through his indulgence, not through our own power. For whatever virtue we call our own is itself bestowed upon us by his goodness. And we might attribute too much to ourselves while in the flesh, unless we lived in the receipt of pardon until we laid it down. This is the reason why there has been vouchsafed to us, through the Mediator, this grace, that we who are polluted by sinful flesh should be cleansed by the likeness of sinful flesh. By this grace of God, wherein he has shown his great compassion toward us, we are both governed by faith in this life, and after this life are led onwards to the fullest perfection by the vision of immutable truth. CHAPTER Twenty Three. Even Porphyry asserts that it was revealed by divine oracles that we are not purified by any sacrifices to sun or moon, meaning it to be inferred that we are not purified by sacrificing to any gods. For what mysteries can purify, if those of the sun and moon, which are esteemed the chief of the celestial gods, do not purify? 
He says, too, in the same place, that principles can purify, lest it should be supposed, from his saying that sacrificing to the sun and moon cannot purify, that sacrificing to some other of the host of gods might do so. And what he as a Platonist means by principles, we know. For he speaks of God the Father and God the Son, whom he calls, writing in Greek, the intellect or mind of the Father. But of the Holy Spirit he says either nothing, or nothing plainly, for I do not understand what other he speaks of as holding the middle place between these two. For if, like Plotinus in his discussion regarding the three principal substances, he wished us to understand by this third the soul of nature, he would certainly not have given it the middle place between these two, that is, between the Father and the Son. For Plotinus places the soul of nature after the intellect of the father, while Porphyry, making it the mean, does not place it after, but between the others. No doubt he spoke according to his light, or as he thought expedient, but we assert that the Holy Spirit is the spirit not of the father only, nor of the son only, but of both. For philosophers speak as they have a mind to, and in the most difficult matters do not scruple to offend religious ears. But we are bound to speak according to a certain rule, lest freedom of speech beget impiety of opinion about the matters themselves of which we speak. Chapter 24 Accordingly, when we speak of God, we do not affirm two or three principles, no more than we are at liberty to affirm two or three gods. Although, speaking of each, of the Father, or of the Son, or of the Holy Ghost, we confess that each is God. And yet we do not say, as the Sabellian heretics say, that the Father is the same as the Son, and the Holy Spirit the same as the Father and the Son. But we say that the Father is the Father of the Son, and the Son the Son of the Father, and that the Holy Spirit of the Father and the Son is neither the Father nor the Son. It was therefore truly said that man is cleansed only by a principle, although the Platonists erred in speaking in the plural of principles. But Porphyry, being under the dominion of these envious powers, whose influence he was at once ashamed of and afraid to throw off, refused to recognize that Christ is the principle by whose incarnation we are purified. Indeed, he despised him, because of the flesh itself which he assumed, that he might offer a sacrifice for our purification a great mystery, unintelligible to Porphyry's pride, which that true and benignant Redeemer brought low by his humility, manifesting himself to mortals by the mortality which he assumed, and which the malignant and deceitful mediators are proud of wanting, promising, as the boon of immortals, a deceptive assistance to wretched men. Thus the good and true mediator showed that it is sin which is evil, and not the substance or nature of flesh. For this, together with the human soul, could without sin be both assumed and retained, and laid down in death, and changed to something better by resurrection. He showed also that death itself, although the punishment of sin, was submitted to by him for our sakes without sin, and must not be evaded by sin on our part, but rather, if opportunity serves, be borne for righteousness' sake. For he was able to expiate sins by dying, because he both died, and not for sin of his own. But he has not been recognized by Porphyry as the principle, otherwise he would have recognized him as the purifier. The principle is not of the flesh nor the human soul in Christ, but the word by which all things were made. The flesh, therefore, does not by its own virtue purify, but by virtue of the word by which it was assumed, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. For speaking mystically of eating his flesh, when those who did not understand him were offended and went away, saying, This is an hard saying, who can bear it? He answered to the rest who remained, 
It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The principle, therefore, having assumed a human soul and flesh, cleanses the soul and flesh of believers. Therefore, when the Jews asked him who he was, he answered that he was the principle. And this weak, carnal, and feeble man, liable to sin, and involved in the darkness of ignorance, could not possibly understand unless we were cleansed and healed by him, both by means of what we were, and of what we were not. For we were men, but we were not righteous. Whereas in his incarnation there was a human nature, but it was righteous, and not sinful. This is the mediation whereby a hand is stretched to the lapsed and fallen. This is the seed ordained by angels, by whose ministry the law also was given, enjoining the worship of one God, and promising that this mediator should come. CHAPTER Twenty Five. It was by faith in this mystery and godliness of life that purification was attainable even by the saints of old, whether before the law was given to the Hebrews, for God and the angels were even then present as instructors, or in the periods under the law, although the promises of spiritual things, being presented in figure, seemed to be carnal, and hence the name of Old Testament. For it was then the prophets lived, by whom, as by angels, the same promise was announced, and among them was he whose grand and divine sentiment regarding the end and supreme good of man I have just now quoted, It is good for me to cleave to God. In this psalm the distinction between the Old and New Testaments is distinctly announced. For the psalmist says that when he saw that the carnal and earthly promises were abundantly enjoyed by the ungodly, his feet were almost gone, his steps had well nigh slipped and that it seemed to him as if he had served God in vain, when he saw that those who despised God increased in that prosperity which he looked for at God's hand. He says, too, that in investigating this matter with a desire of understanding why it was so, he had labored in vain, until he went into the sanctuary of God, and understood the end of those whom he had erroneously considered happy. Then he understood that they were cast down by that very thing, as he says, which they had made their boast, and that they had been consumed and perished for their iniquities. And that that whole fabric of temporal prosperity had become as a dream when one awaketh, and suddenly finds himself destitute of all the joys he had imaged in sleep. And as in this earth or earthly city they seem to themselves to be great, he says, O Lord, in thy city thou wilt reduce their image to nothing. He also shows how beneficial it had been for him to seek even earthly blessings only from the one true God, in whose power are all things. For he says, As a beast was I before thee, and I am always with thee. As a beast, he says, meaning that he was stupid. For I ought to have sought from thee such things as the ungodly could not enjoy as well as I, and not those things which I saw them enjoying in abundance, and hence concluded I was serving thee in vain, because they who declined to serve thee had what I had not. Nevertheless I am always with thee, because even in my desire for such things I did not pray to other gods. And consequently he goes on, Thou hast holden me by my right hand, and by thy counsel thou hast guided me, and with glory hast taken me up. As if all earthly advantages were left-hand blessings, though when he saw them enjoyed by the wicked his feet had almost gone. For what, he says, have I in heaven, and what have I desired from thee upon earth? He blames himself, and is justly displeased with himself, because, though he had in heaven so vast a possession, as he afterwards understood, he yet sought from his God on earth a transitory and fleeting happiness, a happiness of mire, we may say. 
My heart and my flesh, he says, fail, O God of my heart. Happy failure from things below to things above. And hence in another psalm he says, My soul longeth, yea, even faileth, for the courts of the Lord. Yet, though he had said of both his heart and his flesh that they were failing, he did not say, O God of my heart and my flesh, but, O God of my heart, for by the heart the flesh is made clean. Therefore, says the Lord, cleanse that which is within, and the outside shall be clean also. He then says that God himself, not anything received from him, but himself, is his portion. The God of my heart and my portion for ever. Among the various objects of human choice, God alone satisfied him. For lo, he says, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou destroyest all them that go a-whoring from thee. That is, who prostitute themselves to many gods. And then follows the verse for which all the rest of the psalm seems to prepare. It is good for me to cleave to God, not to go far off, not to go a-whoring with a multitude of gods. And then shall this union with God be perfected, when all that is to be redeemed in us has been redeemed. But for the present we must, as he goes on to say, place our hope in God. For that which is seen, says the apostle, is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Being then for the present established in this hope, let us do what the psalmist further indicates, and become in our measure angels or messengers of God, declaring his will and praising his glory and his grace. For when he had said, To place my hope in God, he goes on, That I may declare all thy praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion. This is the most glorious city of God. This is the city which knows and worships one God. She is celebrated by the holy angels who invite us to their society, and desire us to become fellow-citizens with them in this city. For they do not wish us to worship them as our gods, but to join them in worshipping their God and ours, nor to sacrifice to them, but together with them to become a sacrifice to God. Accordingly, whoever will lay aside malignant obstinacy and consider these things, shall be assured that all these blessed and immortal spirits, who do not envy us, for if they envied they were not blessed, but rather love us and desire us to be as blessed as themselves, look on us with greater pleasure and give us greater assistance when we join them in worshipping one God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, than if we were to offer to themselves sacrifice and worship. CHAPTER Twenty Six. I know not how it is so, but it seems to me that Porphyry blushed for his friends the Theurgists, for he knew all that I have adduced, but did not frankly condemn polytheistic worship. He said, in fact, that there are some angels who visit earth and reveal divine truth to Theurgists, and others who publish on earth the things that belong to the Father, his height and depth. Can we believe, then, that the angels, whose office it is to declare the will of the Father, wish us to be subject to any but him whose will they declare? And hence, even this Platonist himself judiciously observes that we should rather imitate than invoke them. We ought not, then, to fear that we may offend these immortal and happy subjects of the one God by not sacrificing to them, for this they know to be due only to the one true God, in allegiance to whom they themselves find their blessedness, and therefore they will not have it given to them, either in figure or in the reality which the mysteries of sacrifice symbolized. 
such arrogance belongs to proud and wretched demons whose disposition is diametrically opposite to the piety of those who are subject to god and whose blessedness consists in attachment to him and that we also may attain to this bliss they aid us as is fit with sincere kindliness and usurp over us no dominion but declare to us him under whose rule we are then fellow-subjects why then o philosopher do you still fear to speak freely against the powers which are inimical both to true virtue and to the gifts of the true god Already you have discriminated between the angels who proclaim God's will, and those who visit theurgists, drawn down by I know not what art. Why do you still ascribe to these latter the honour of declaring divine truth? If they do not declare the will of the Father, what divine revelations can they make? Are not these the evil spirits who were bound over by the incantations of an envious man, that they should not grant purity of soul to another, and could not, as you say, be set free from these bonds by a good man anxious for purity, and recover power over their own actions? Do you still doubt whether these are wicked demons? Or do you perhaps feign ignorance, that you may not give offence to the theurgists, who have allured you by their secret rites, and have taught you, as a mighty boon, these insane and pernicious devilries? Do you dare to elevate above the air, and even to heaven, these envious powers, or pests, let me rather call them, less worthy of the name of sovereign than of slave, as you yourself own? And are you not ashamed to place them even among your sidereal gods, and so put a slight upon the stars themselves? Chapter 27 How much more tolerable and accordant with human feeling is the error of your Platonist co-sectary Apuleius? For he attributed the diseases and storms of human passions only to the demons who occupy a grade beneath the moon, and makes even this avowal as by constraint regarding gods whom he honours. But the superior and celestial gods who inhabit the ethereal regions, whether visible as the sun, moon, and other luminaries whose brilliancy makes them conspicuous, or invisible but believed in by him, he does his utmost to remove beyond the slightest stain of these perturbations. It is not then from Plato, but from your Chaldean teachers you have learned to elevate human vices to the ethereal and imperial regions of the world, and to the celestial firmament, in order that your theurgists might be able to obtain from your gods divine revelations. And yet you make yourself superior to these divine revelations by your intellectual life, which dispenses with these theurgic purifications as not needed by a philosopher. But by way of rewarding your teachers, you recommend these arts to other men, who, not being philosophers, may be persuaded to use what you acknowledge to be useless to yourself, who are capable of higher things, so that those who cannot avail themselves of the virtue of philosophy, which is too arduous for the multitude, may, at your instigation, betake themselves to theurgists, by whom they may be purified, not indeed in the intellectual, but in the spiritual part of the soul." Now, as the persons who are unfit for philosophy form incomparably the majority of mankind, more may be compelled to consult these secret and illicit teachers of yours than frequent the Platonic schools. For these most impure demons, pretending to be ethereal gods, whose herald and messenger you have become, have promised that those who are purified by theurgy in the spiritual part of their soul shall not indeed return to the Father, but shall dwell among the ethereal gods above the aerial regions. But such fancies are not listened to by the multitudes of men whom Christ came to set free from the tyranny of demons. For in him they have the most gracious cleansing, in which mind, spirit, and body alike participate. For in order that he might heal the whole man from the plague of sin, he took without sin the whole human nature. 
would that you had known him, and would that you had committed yourself for healing to him, rather than to your own frail and infirm human virtue, or to pernicious and curious arts. He would not have deceived you, for him your own oracles, on your own showing, acknowledged holy and immortal. It is of him, too, that the most famous poet speaks, poetically indeed, since he applies it to the person of another, yet truly, if you refer it to Christ, saying, Under thine auspices, if any traces of our crimes remain, they shall be obliterated, and earth freed from its perpetual fear. By which he indicates, that by reason of the infirmity which attaches to this life, the greatest progress in virtue and righteousness leaves room for the existence, if not of crimes, yet of the traces of crimes, which are obliterated only by that Saviour of whom this verse speaks. For that he did not say this at the prompting of his own fancy, Virgil tells us in almost the last verse of that fourth eclogue, when he says, The last age predicted by the Cumaean Sibyl has now arrived whence it plainly appears that this had been dictated by the Cumaean Sibyl. But those theurgists, or rather demons, who assume the appearance and form of gods, pollute rather than purify the human spirit by false appearances and the delusive mockery of unsubstantial forms. How can those whose own spirit is unclean cleanse the spirit of man? Were they not unclean, they would not be bound by the incantations of an envious man, and would neither be afraid nor grudge to bestow that hollow boon which they promise. But it is sufficient for our purpose that you acknowledge that the intellectual soul, that is, our mind, cannot be justified by theurgy, and that even the spiritual or inferior part of our soul cannot by this act be made eternal and immortal, though you maintain that it can be purified by it. Christ, however, promises life eternal, and therefore to him the world flocks, greatly to your indignation, greatly also to your astonishment and confusion. What avails your forced avowal that theurgy leads men astray, and deceives vast numbers by its ignorant and foolish teaching, and that it is the most manifest mistake to have recourse by prayer and sacrifice to angels and principalities, when at the same time to save yourself from the charge of spending labor in vain on such arts, you direct men to the theurgists, that by their means men, who do not live by the rule of the intellectual soul, may have their spiritual soul purified. Chapter 28. You drive men, therefore, into the most palpable error, and yet you are not ashamed of doing so much harm, though you call yourself a lover of virtue and wisdom. Had you been true and faithful in this profession, you would have recognized Christ, the virtue of God, and the wisdom of God, and would not, in the pride of vain science, have revolted from his wholesome humility. Nevertheless, you acknowledge that the spiritual part of the soul can be purified by the virtue of chastity without the aid of those theurgic arts and mysteries which you wasted your time in learning. You even say sometimes that these mysteries do not raise the soul after death, so that after the termination of this life they seem to be of no service even to the part you call spiritual, and yet you recur on every opportunity to these arts, for no other purpose, so far as I can see, than to appear an accomplished theurgist, and gratify those who are curious in illicit arts, or else to inspire others with the same curiosity. But we give you all praise for saying that this art is to be feared, both on account of the legal enactments against it, and by reason of the danger involved in the very practice of it and would that in this at least you were listened to by its wretched votaries, that they might be withdrawn from entire absorption in it, or might even be preserved from tampering with it at all. 
You say indeed that ignorance, and the numberless vices resulting from it, cannot be removed by any mysteries, but only by la patricos nos, that is, the father's mind or intellect, conscious of the father's will. But that Christ is this mind you do not believe, for him you despise on account of the body he took of a woman, and the shame of the cross. For your lofty wisdom spurns such low and contemptible things, and soars to more exalted regions. But he fulfills what the holy prophets truly predicted regarding him. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and bring to naught the prudence of the prudent. For he does not destroy and bring to naught his own gift in them, but what they arrogate to themselves, and do not hold of him. And hence the apostle, having quoted this testimony from the prophet, adds, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling-block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is despised as a weak and foolish thing by those who are wise and strong in themselves. Yet this is the grace which heals the weak, who do not proudly boast a blessedness of their own, but rather humbly acknowledge their real misery. CHAPTER Twenty Nine. You proclaim the Father and his Son, whom you call the Father's intellect or mind, and between these a third, by whom we suppose you mean the Holy Spirit, and in your own fashion you call these three gods. In this, though your expressions are inaccurate, you do in some sort, and as through a veil, see what we should strive towards. But the incarnation of the unchangeable Son of God, whereby we are saved, and are unable to reach the things we believe, or in part understand, this is what you refuse to recognize. You see in a fashion, although at a distance, although with filmy eye, the country in which we should abide, but the way to it you know not. Yet you believe in grace, for you say it is granted to few to reach God by virtue of intelligence. For you do not say, few have thought fit or have wished, but it has been granted to few, distinctly acknowledging God's grace, not man's sufficiency. You also use this word more expressly, when, in accordance with the opinion of Plato, you make no doubt that in this life a man cannot by any means attain to perfect wisdom, but that whatever is lacking is in the future life made up to those who live intellectually by God's providence and grace. Oh, had you but recognized the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord, and that very incarnation of His wherein He assumed a human soul and body, you might have seemed the brightest example of grace. But what am I doing? I know it is useless to speak to a dead man, useless at least so far as regards you, but perhaps not in vain for those who esteem you highly, and love you on account of their love of wisdom or curiosity about those arts which you ought not to have learned, and these persons I address in your name. The grace of God could not have been more graciously commended to us than thus, that the only Son of God, remaining unchangeable in himself, should assume humanity, and should give us the hope of his love, by means of the mediation of a human nature, through which we, from the condition of men, might come to him who was so far off, the immortal from the mortal, the unchangeable from the changeable, the just from the unjust, the blessed from the wretched. 
and, as he had given us a natural instinct to desire blessedness and immortality, he himself continuing to be blessed, but assuming mortality, by enduring what we fear, taught us to despise it, though what we long for he might bestow upon us. But in order to your acquiescence in this truth it is lowliness that is requisite, and to this it is extremely difficult to bend you. For what is there incredible, especially to men like you, accustomed to speculation, which might have predisposed you to believe in this? What is there incredible, I say, in the assertion that God assumed a human soul and body? You yourselves ascribe such excellence to the intellectual soul, which is, after all, the human soul, that you maintain that it can become consubstantial with that intelligence of the Father, whom you believe in as the Son of God. What incredible thing is it, then, if some one soul be assumed by him in an ineffable and unique manner for the salvation of many? Moreover, our nature itself testifies that a man is incomplete unless a body be united with a soul. This certainly would be more incredible were it not of all things the most common, for we should more easily believe in a union between spirit and spirit, or, to use your own terminology, between the incorporeal and the incorporeal, even though the one were human, the other divine, the one changeable and the other unchangeable, than in a union between the corporeal and the incorporeal. But perhaps it is the unprecedented birth of a body from a virgin that staggers you. But, so far from this being a difficulty, it ought rather to assist you to receive our religion, that a miraculous person was born miraculously. Or do you find a difficulty in the fact that after his body had been given up to death, and had been changed into a higher kind of body by resurrection, and was now no longer mortal but incorruptible, he carried it up into heavenly places? Perhaps you refuse to believe this, because you remember that Porphyry, in these very books from which I have cited so much, and which treat of the return of the soul, so frequently teaches that a body of every kind is to be escaped from, in order that the soul may dwell in blessedness with God. But here, in place of following Porphyry, you ought rather to have corrected him, especially since you agree with him in believing such incredible things about the soul of this visible world and huge material frame. For, as scholars of Plato, you hold that the world is an animal, and a very happy animal, which you wish to be also everlasting. How, then, is it never to be loosed from a body, and yet never to lose its happiness, if in order to the happiness of the soul the body must be left behind? The sun, too, and the other stars you not only acknowledge to be bodies, in which you have the cordial assent of all seeing men, but also, in obedience to what you reckon a profounder insight, you declare that they are very blessed animals, and eternal together with their bodies. Why is it, then, that when the Christian faith is pressed upon you, you forget, or pretend to ignore, what you habitually discuss or teach? Why is it that you refuse to be Christians, on the ground that you hold opinions which, in fact, you yourselves demolish? Is it not because Christ came in lowliness, and ye are proud? The precise nature of the resurrection bodies of the saints may sometimes occasion discussion among those who are best read in the Christian scriptures, yet there is not among us the smallest doubt that they shall be everlasting, and of a nature exemplified in the instance of Christ's risen body. But whatever be their nature, since we maintain that they shall be absolutely incorruptible and immortal, and shall offer no hindrance to the soul's contemplation, by which it is fixed in God, and as you say that among the celestials the bodies of the eternally blessed are eternal, why do you maintain that in order to blessedness every body must be escaped from? Why do you thus seek such a plausible reason for escaping from the Christian faith, if not because, as I again say, Christ is humble, and ye proud? Are ye ashamed to be corrected? 
This is the vice of the proud. It is forsooth a degradation for learned men to pass from the school of Plato to the discipleship of Christ, who by his spirit taught a fisherman to think and to say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The old saint Simplicianus, afterwards bishop of Milan, used to tell me that a certain Platonist was in the habit of saying that this opening passage of the Holy Gospel, entitled According to John, should be written in letters of gold and hung up in all churches in the most conspicuous place. But the proud scorned to take God for their master, because the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So that with these miserable creatures it is not enough that they are sick, but they boast of their sickness, and are ashamed of the medicine which could heal them. In doing so they secure not elevation, but a more disastrous fall. CHAPTER thirty. If it is considered unseemly to amend anything which Plato has touched, why did Porphyry himself make emendations, and these not a few? for it is very certain that Plato wrote that the souls of men return after death to the bodies of beasts. Plotinus also, Porphyry's teacher, held this opinion, yet Porphyry justly rejected it. He was of opinion that human souls return indeed into human bodies, but not into the bodies they had left, but other new bodies. He shrank from the other opinion, lest a woman who had returned into a mule might possibly carry her own son on her back. He did not shrink, however, from a theory which admitted the possibility of a mother coming back into a girl and marrying her own son. How much more honourable a creed is that which was taught by the holy and truthful angels, uttered by the prophets who were moved by God's Spirit, preached by him who was foretold as the coming Saviour by his forerunning heralds, and by the apostles whom he sent forth, and who filled the whole world with the gospel? How much more honourable, I say, is the belief that souls return once for all to their own bodies, than that they return again and again to diverse bodies? Nevertheless Porphyry, as I have said, did considerably improve upon this opinion, in so far at least as he maintained that human souls could transmigrate only into human bodies, and made no scruple about demolishing the bestial prisons into which Plato had wished to cast them. He says, too, that God put the soul into the world that it might recognize the evils of matter, and return to the Father, and be forever emancipated from the polluting contact of matter. And although here is some inappropriate thinking, for the soul is rather given to the body that it may do good, for it would not learn evil unless it did it, yet he corrects the opinion of other Platonists, and that on a point of no small importance, inasmuch as he avows that the soul, which is purged from all evil and received to the Father's presence, shall never again suffer the ills of this life. By this opinion he quite subverted the favourite Platonic dogma that as dead men are made out of living ones, so living men are made out of dead ones, and he exploded the idea which Virgil seems to have adopted from Plato, that the purified souls which have been sent into the Elysian fields, the poetic name for the joys of the blessed, are summoned to the river Leith, that is, to the oblivion of the past, that earthward they may pass once more, remembering not the things before, and with a blind propension yearn to fleshly bodies to return. 
This found no favour with Porphyry, and very justly, for it is indeed foolish to believe that souls should desire to return from that life, which cannot be very blessed unless by the assurance of its permanence, and to come back into this life, into the pollution of corruptible bodies, as if the result of perfect purification were only to make defilement desirable. For if perfect purification affects the oblivion of all evils, and the oblivion of evils creates a desire for a body in which the soul may again be entangled with evils, then the supreme felicity will be the cause of infelicity, and the perfection of wisdom the cause of foolishness, and the purest cleansing the cause of defilement. And however long the blessedness of the soul lasts, it cannot be founded on truth, if in order to be blessed it must be deceived. For it cannot be blessed unless it be free from fear. But to be free from fear, it must be under the false impression that it shall be always blessed, the false impression, for it is destined to be also at some time miserable. How then shall the soul rejoice in truth whose joy is founded on falsehood? Porphyry saw this, and therefore said that the purified soul returns to the Father, that it may never more be entangled in the polluting contact with evil. The opinion, therefore, of some Platonists that there is a necessary revolution carrying souls away and bringing them round again to the same things, is false. But were it true, what were the advantage of knowing it? Would the Platonists presume to allege their superiority to us, because we were in this life ignorant of what they themselves were doomed to be ignorant of when perfected in purity and wisdom in another and better life, and which they must be ignorant of, if they are to be blessed? If it were most absurd and foolish to say so, then certainly we must prefer Porphyry's opinion to the idea of a circulation of souls through constantly alternating happiness and misery. And if this is just, here is a Platonist emending Plato, here is a man who saw what Plato did not see, and who did not shrink from correcting so illustrious a master, but preferred truth to Plato. CHAPTER Thirty One. Why, then, do we not rather believe the divinity in those matters which human talent cannot fathom? Why do we not credit the assertion of divinity that the soul is not co-eternal with God, but is created, and once was not? For the Platonists seem to themselves to allege an adequate reason for their rejection of this doctrine, when they affirmed that nothing could be everlasting which had not always existed. Plato, however, in writing concerning the world and the gods in it, whom the Supreme made, most expressly states that they had a beginning, and yet would have no end, but by the sovereign will of the Creator would endure eternally. But by way of interpreting this, the Platonists have discovered that he meant a beginning not of time, but of cause. For as if a foot, they say, had always been from eternity in dust, there would always have been a print underneath it, and yet no one would doubt that this print was made by the pressure of the foot, nor that, though the one was made by the other, neither was prior to the other, so, they say, the world and the gods created in it have always been, their creator always existing, and yet they were made. If then the soul has always existed, are we to say that its wretchedness has always existed? For if there is something in it which was not from eternity, but began in time, why is it impossible that the soul itself, though not previously existing, should begin to be in time? Its blessedness, too, which, as he owns, is to be more stable, and indeed endless, after the soul's experience of evils, this undoubtedly has a beginning in time, and yet is to be always, though previously it had no existence. This whole argumentation, therefore, to establish that nothing can be endless except that which has no, no beginning, falls to the ground. For here we find the blessedness of the soul which has a beginning and yet has no end. 
and therefore let the incapacity of man give place to the authority of God, and let us take our belief regarding the true religion from the ever-blessed spirits, who do not seek for themselves that honour which they know to be due to their God and ours, and who do not command us to sacrifice, save only to him, whose sacrifice, as I have often said already, and must often say again, we and they ought together to be, offered through that priest who offered himself to death a sacrifice for us, in that human nature which he assumed, and according to which he desired to be our priest. CHAPTER Thirty Two. This is the religion which possesses the universal way for delivering the soul, for except by this way none can be delivered. This is a kind of royal way which alone leads to a kingdom which does not totter like all temporal dignities, but stands firm on eternal foundations. And when Porphyry says, towards the end of the first book De Regressu Anime, that no system of doctrine which furnishes the universal way for delivering the soul has as yet been received, either from the truest philosophy, or from the ideas and practices of the Indians, or from the reasoning of the Chaldeans, or from any source whatever, and that no historical reading had made him acquainted with that way, he manifestly acknowledges that there is such a way, but that as yet he was not acquainted with it. Nothing of all that he had so laboriously learned concerning the deliverance of the soul, nothing of all that he seemed to others, if not to himself, to know and believe, satisfied him. For he perceived that there was still wanting a commanding authority which it might be right to follow in a matter of such importance. And when he says that he had not learned from any truest philosophy a system which possessed the universal way of the soul's deliverance, he shows plainly enough, as it seems to me, either that the philosophy of which he was a disciple was not the truest, or that it did not comprehend such a way. And how can that be the truest philosophy which does not possess this way? For what else is the universal way of the soul's deliverance than that by which all souls universally are delivered, and without which therefore no soul is delivered? And when he says, in addition, or from the ideas and practices of the Indians, or from the reasoning of the Chaldeans, or from any source whatever, he declares in the most unequivocal language that this universal way of the soul's deliverance was not embraced in what he had learned either from the Indians or the Chaldeans. And yet he could not forbear stating that it was from the Chaldeans he had derived these divine oracles of which he makes such frequent mention. What, therefore, does he mean by this universal way of the soul's deliverance, which had not yet been made known by any truest philosophy, or by the doctrinal systems of those nations which were considered to have great insight in things divine, because they indulged more freely in a curious and fanciful science and worship of angels? What is this universal way of which he acknowledges his ignorance, if not a way which does not belong to one nation as its special property, but is common to all, and divinely bestowed? Porphyry, a man of no mediocre abilities, does not question that such a way exists, for he believes that divine providence could not have left men destitute of this universal way of delivering the soul. For he does not say that this way does not exist, but that this great boon and assistance has not yet been discovered, and has not come to his knowledge. And no wonder, for Porphyry lived in an age when this universal way of the soul's deliverance, in other words, the Christian religion, was exposed to the persecutions of idolaters and demon-worshippers and earthly rulers, that the number of martyrs or witnesses for the truth might be completed and consecrated, and that by them proof might be given that we must endure all bodily sufferings in the cause of the holy faith, and for the commendation of the truth. 
Porphyry, being a witness of these persecutions, concluded that this way was destined to a speedy extinction, and that it, therefore, was not the universal way of the soul's deliverance, and did not see that the very thing that thus moved him, and deterred him from becoming a Christian, contributed to the confirmation and more effectual commendation of our religion. This, then, is the universal way of the soul's deliverance, the way that is granted by the divine compassion to the nations universally and no nation to which the knowledge of it has already come, or may hereafter come, ought to demand, why so soon, or why so late? For the design of him who sends it is impenetrable by human capacity. This was felt by Porphyry when he confined himself to saying that this gift of God was not yet received, and had not yet come to his knowledge. For though this was so, he did not on that account pronounce that the way itself had no existence. This, I say, is the universal way for the deliverance of believers, concerning which the faithful Abraham received the divine assurance, In thy seed shall all nations be blessed. He indeed was by birth a Chaldean, but that he might receive these great promises, and that there might be propagated from him a seed disposed by angels in the hand of a mediator, in whom this universal way, thrown open to all nations for the deliverance of the soul, might be found, he was ordered to leave his country and kindred and father's house. Then was he himself first of all delivered from the Chaldean superstitions, and by his obedience worshipped the one true God whose promises he faithfully trusted. This is the universal way of which it is said in holy prophecy, God be merciful unto us, and bless us, and cause his face to shine upon us, that thy way may be known upon earth, thy saving health among all nations. And hence, when our Saviour, so long after, had taken flesh of the seed of Abraham, he says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the universal way of which so long before it had been predicted, and it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the tops of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This way, therefore, is not the property of one, but of all nations. The law and the word of the Lord did not remain in Zion and Jerusalem, but issued thence to be universally diffused. And therefore the mediator himself, after his resurrection, says to his alarmed disciples, These are the words which I spake unto you, while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understandings, that they might understand the scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. This is the universal way of the soul's deliverance, which the holy angels and the holy prophets formerly disclosed, where they could, among the few men who found the grace of God, and especially in the Hebrew nation, whose commonwealth was, as it were, consecrated to prefigure and foreannounce the city of God, which was to be gathered from all the nations, by their tabernacle and temple and priesthood and sacrifices. 
In some explicit statements, and in many obscure foreshadowings, this way was declared, but latterly came the Mediator himself in the flesh, and his blessed apostles, revealing how the grace of the New Testament more openly explained what had been obscurely hinted to preceding generations, in conformity with the relation of the ages of the human race, and as it pleased God in his wisdom to appoint, who also bore them witness with signs and miracles, some of which I have cited above. For not only were there visions of angels and words heard from those heavenly ministrants, but also men of God, armed with the word of simple piety, cast out unclean spirits from the bodies and senses of men, and healed deformities and sicknesses. The wild beasts of earth and sea, the birds of air, inanimate things, the elements, the stars, obeyed their divine commands. The powers of hell gave way before them, the dead were restored to life. I say nothing of the miracles peculiar and proper to the Saviour's own person, especially the nativity and the resurrection, in the one of which he wrought only the mystery of a virgin maternity, while in the other he furnished an instance of the resurrection which all shall at last experience. This way purifies the whole man, and prepares the mortal in all his parts for immortality. For to prevent us from seeking for one purgation for the part which Porphyry calls intellectual, and another for the part he calls spiritual, and another for the body itself, our most mighty and truthful purifier and saviour assume the whole human nature. Except by this way, which has been present among men both during the period of the promises and of the proclamation of their fulfilment, no man has been delivered, no man is delivered, no man shall be delivered. As to Porphyry's statement that the universal way of the soul's deliverance had not yet come to his knowledge by any acquaintance he had with history, I would ask, what more remarkable history can be found than that which has taken possession of the whole world by its authoritative voice? Or what more trustworthy than that which narrates past events, and predicts the future with equal clearness, and in the unfulfilled predictions of which we are constrained to believe by those that are already fulfilled? For neither Porphyry nor any Platonist can despise divination and prediction, even of things that pertain to this life and earthly matters, though they justly despise ordinary soothsaying and the divination that is connected with magical arts. They deny that these are the predictions of great men, or are to be considered important, and they are right, for they are founded, either on the foresight of subsidiary causes, as to a professional eye much of the course of a disease is foreseen by certain premonitory symptoms, or the unclean demons predict what they have resolved to do, and that they may thus work upon the thoughts and desires of the wicked with an appearance of authority, and incline human frailty to imitate their impure actions. It is not such things that the saints who walk in the universal way care to predict as important, although for the purpose of commending the faith they knew and often predicted even such things as could not be detected by human observation, nor be readily verified by experience. But there were other truly important and divine events which they predicted, in so far as it was given them to know the will of God. For the incarnation of Christ, and all those important marvels that were accomplished in him, and done in his name, the repentance of men, and the conversion of their wills to God, the remission of sins, the grace of righteousness, the faith of the pious, and the multitudes in all parts of the world who believe in the true divinity, the overthrow of idolatry and demon worship, and the testing of the faithful by trials, the purification of those who persevered, and their deliverance from all evil, 
the day of judgment, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal damnation of the community of the ungodly, and the eternal kingdom of the most glorious city of God, ever blessed in the enjoyment of the vision of God. These things were predicted and promised in the scriptures of this way, and of these we see so many fulfilled that we justly and piously trust that the rest will also come to pass. As for those who do not believe, and consequently do not understand, that this is the way which leads straight to the vision of God and to eternal fellowship with Him, according to the true predictions and statements of the Holy Scriptures, they may storm at our position, but they cannot storm it. And therefore, in these ten books, though not meeting, I dare say, the expectation of some, yet I have, as the true God and Lord has vouchsafed to aid me, satisfied the desire of certain persons by refuting the objections of the ungodly, who prefer their own gods to the founder of the holy city, about which we undertook to speak. Of these ten books, the first five were directed against those who think we should worship the gods for the sake of the blessings of this life, and the second five against those who think we should worship them for the sake of the life which is to be after death. And now, in fulfilment of the promise I made in the first book, I shall go on to say, as God shall aid me, what I think needs to be said regarding the origin, history, and deserved ends of the two cities, which, as already remarked, are in this world commingled and implicated with one another. End of Book 10, Chapters 18-32 through 32. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.